0: Welcome to the Broken Token Classic Arcade and Pinball Podcast.
1: Hey everybody, it's Brent and this is episode 95 of the Broken Token Classic Gaming Podcast. Longtime listeners of the show will notice that right off the bat, I am not introducing the co-host of the show, Whitney Roberts. Whitney and I have had a very difficult time this month getting synced up to get together and record an episode. So instead of delaying it much longer, we talked about it and said, hey, look, I'll go ahead and record a show and uh, give everybody kind of what I've got going on and some cool lessons learned. Kind of do a little mini episode, a little different from what we actually normally do, to be honest with you, and then we'll pick up the normal cadence of the show, hopefully here in December. If this is your first show, welcome. You might want to go back and check out episode like, you know, start around 93, 94, jump back a couple, and you get a little better feel for what the show is like. This one, like I said, is going to be a little different. Classically, we take a a hard look at old school, classic arcade games, pinball machines, and of course, modern pinball, because there's just so much of it. I want to talk a little bit about consoles and uh, retro home computers in this show because that is what I have been immersed in. For the month, I'll go ahead and mention that the show isn't going to be just me. So, if you're looking at your podcast player and the timer and wondering if I actually talked that long, the answer is no, I did not. This show will also include a panel discussion that kind of keeps within the theme here. The panel discussion is from Portland Retro Gaming Expo 2019. And the title is Getting the Best Out of Your Classic Consoles at Any Price Point. And it's hosted by uh, Bob Neal, the founder of RetroRGB, RetroRGB.com. So I'm trying to remember if I spoke about my plans on 94, episode 94. If I didn't, the the plans, once we recorded 94 and uh, um, I got my my game room back, it it deconverted from the Broken Token Studio. My plan was to start digging through my collection of old console, console games, home computers, everything that I've had, that I have kind of, let's just be honest, everything that I've got left. If you've listened to the show for a while, I've mentioned over the past couple of years, I've had consoles that I have taken like to Louisville Arcade Expo. Man, I may have actually taken some to Nashville at some point in time. I've, I've offered them for sale. And, and basically kind of what I was doing was I'm trying to thin out a little bit. I think we all go through that from time to time. I had started in this. If you're a real longtime listener of the show, you know this. I kind of started with the arcade stuff. My, my gateway drug, if you will, was home consoles, the Atari 2600. And, and as luck would have it, I'll talk about it here in a, in a second, actually. The very first thing, the very first Atari, as it was, that I purchased that Started this this madness that surrounds me right now in my, in my game room. That's also the Broken Token Studio. The very first piece that I purchased that started this, and this actually just kind of occurred to me, is sitting to my right down here at the end of the room. And like I said, I'll, I'm going to give everybody kind of a an audio tour, if you will, uh, of of what surrounds me. So anyway, like I said, I. I Pretty much the day after the show (laughs) dropped, I started digging digging things out, and I had already gone through some stuff as I mentioned a a few minutes ago. And we all do this as we collect. We get satellite pieces. This is the this is the uh, well, you know that uh, I don't need another video game, or I don't. Man, that that pen is in the next town over, or on the other side of my town, and it's sitting there, and it's it's really cheap, and I I don't you know we all we all get those deals, the extra stuff. Makes its way in our orbit, and that's kind of what happened. I started long ago, and i'm I'm actually trying to think back this was probably about nineteen ninety six and I'm basing that on uh, I kind of kind of remember the car I was driving and and a few other things in my life at that point so about nineteen ninety six is when this madness kind of started with the piece I'll talk about here in a minute that's sitting down here to the right, uh, to my right. At that time, it it was totally possible in the console world to walk into a thrift store. And there were, there were several that I had easy access to. I could walk into a thrift store and through the course of a week, it was not uncommon to have picked up a console of some type. And on the Atari side, picked up one to three or four carts, that, uh, that I didn't have. I mean, there was that much stuff out there. It was it, it where you might walk into a thrift store today and they've got that big rack of CDs. It was not uncommon to walk into a thrift store and they had stacks of video game cartridges, Atari and up as, as I was in and had access to this stuff. Well, I, I said, uh, uh, a Genesis doesn't, I didn't have a Genesis, but I mean, it's $4, you know, or a lot of the thrift stores around here, they got to the point where they would break everything up and they would have a console priced and the uh, the individual controllers priced and they'd all be scattered about the store. It became kind of like this Easter egg hunt where once you found a piece, you're like, all right, well, how much else is here? Used to be they would actually bag all of that. So it wasn't uncommon. You'd get a bag. I got a Clico Vision like this. It was in a bag with a bunch of games and the controllers and the power supply and all that. And it was, I, I'm, I'm just guessing here, it was five or ten dollars you know this was a long time ago and this stuff was just given away to these thrift stores so so i ended up with all these satellite collections i had a couple uh in televisions and a ton of carts uh, those kind of went away i got rid of those i can't think it was 2018 or maybe early 2019 I know I've had several Sega Genesis, uh, Genesi, what's a, what's a, if you got multiple Genesis's, what do you have? Is it a Genesis, is it a collection of Genesises? Anyway, I had several of those. I had a Sega CD, I had a Sega Saturn, a litany of things. I had a, a never, I only knew one kid growing up that had a TRS-80. I had zero affinity for a TRS-80. Uh, I vaguely remember even seeing it sitting in his basement. I don't even recall ever having maybe played a game on it. Somehow I ended up with a TRS-80. All that stuff I've worked my way through, but I had this, what was my core collection and a few satellite pieces that was still stuffed away in boxes. Some of it was out at one point in time at my old house. And a lot of it got kind of consolidated into other boxes when I moved into this house about 10 years ago. And then in the mix of all this, I know I've mentioned this on the show I had the a couple storage totes, like the big storage totes. This was right about 10 years ago. I was moving and I, I passed a yard sale. And it was this ginormous yard sale. And it looked like, I, I don't know what pulled me in. Maybe I remember it looking very organized from the street. You know, there was blankets laid out and tarps laid out and things. It almost looked like a little department store. And I, I pulled in and sure enough, there was one blanket that had nothing on it, but old console and home computer stuff. And, um, I bought everything that was there, put it in the back of my truck and went home. And I had kind of dug through it a little bit, never got, had never gone through it. I pulled those totes out and I did know, I remember I mentioned a Coleco vision earlier, getting one in a thrift store and in that lot, yeah, and I remember I found this a couple years ago. Total shock to me. There was a Cleco Vision in there, complete Cleco Vision. And as I was digging through it here, um, you know, probably three weeks ago, four weeks ago at this point, there was a couple twenty six hundreds in there, buried in them. I mean, that's how big these totes were. They were huge and stuffed in carts piled on top of them. I got several games out of that collection that I didn't have already, which is. Kind of surprising. I mean, I I don't have a ginormous 2600 collection, but I I don't have a small one either. I was still kind of shocked that that I found several games, probably eight or ten, that maybe as many as a dozen, that, that I didn't have. And I found several that were nicer than games that I already had. So, you know, those came out of my collection and went into the duplicate pile, but nonetheless. So, all right, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give everybody this virtual tour and we're going to see this, this is either going to succeed wonderfully and no one is going to know that this happened or it's going to fail miserably. And it's going to be a a new trope of the broken token classic gaming podcast. I'm going to switch over to a handheld mic so that I can actually kind of walk through here and give everybody an idea uh, of just (laughs) collection is collection is probably a nice word. (laughs) I've I've shown shown some pictures to some to some friends and uh jokingly maybe they were talking about the horde. All right, so I switched mics over and it's so the, the, the sound is probably gonna be a little different because this is more of a uh stage type mic versus the studio mics that Whitney and I normally record the show with and I'm gonna walk down here across uh across the floor. So just so that everybody realizes kind of where I've uh, what I've got spread out down here. I'm in my game room. I've got in front of my pins, my, my games are completely completely inaccessible at this point. I have two 8-foot like cafeteria style tables. I have I think this is a 5-foot fold out table that we usually use for recording the show. This is generally where uh, on this table where I would set set up the, all the recording gear and all that kind of fun stuff. Past that is another four foot long rectangular table. The one of the other two cafeteria tables, eight foot tables is here to my right. And then next to it is a card table and laid out amongst all of those tables is the the mass of this collection. So I'm actually just going to start down here with kind of what started it all. I mentioned this earlier. And like I said, it didn't kind of really sink into me until I was just kind of describing it to everybody. But this piece is what started all of this and by all of this I I mean the pinball collection, the the arcade stuff and uh, uh, you know it eventually led of course to the podcast and what that is is a boxed Sears telegames video arcade the the telegames kind of branding was used by Sears And if memory serves, in this case, it's a rebranded twenty six hundred. All right, it is actually a or heavy sixer, so it's six switch. And for for those that maybe aren't into the into the Atari side of the house, it, picture your classic Atari twenty six hundred. You may have seen it a million times, but not realized it. There are models that have six switches, six silver switches across the face of the console. And there are later models that have just four. And then the other two switches were migrated. Actually, it was cost reduction because it's the difficulty switches, which I'm assuming they felt were used less often. So they were more inexpensive type just slider switches that were put on the back of the console and then even within that you have a couple variants there's a, a heavy sixer and a light sixer and that has to do with when it was produced and how much rf shielding is in it and then cost reduction and then even in the four switches they have a wood grain where it's got the classic wood grain front then they have what everyone calls a vader which is just all black like the face of it where the wood grain is is this really cool shiny black with the atari logo on it and and in silver so anyway that's probably way more than anyone cared to ever ever know about the 2600 nonetheless the sears telegames was their house brand for rebranding consoles and if memory serves they they slapped that telegames name on a couple different consoles i i want to say maybe there was even a rebranded ColecoVision that they put telegames on so the first piece i bought that again started all this madness was a boxed Sears telegames and this happens to actually be uh, a heavy sixer so this this console was one of the first 2600s if you will I know it's a Sears telegame branded it was one of the first ones made and then the the label on the bottom actually is made in the U.S. uh, in California and I can't remember exactly which city I'd have to pull it out of the box but if you all can hear me kind of moving it around it's got the price tag on it, if I remember correctly. It does actually have the, uh, um, the uh, I believe it's the original style CX-10 joysticks. And if you listen here, it's got like a you know, that's a little different internal. Whitney is the, really the expert on that, and we'll have to. Uh, you know, he's probably going to listen to this. Oh, there's what I'm looking for, and he's going to be cringing, going, "Oh my gosh, you, you know, let me let me tell you what's in that. This thing cost. So, you know, this is a, a this is a heavy sixer. Uh, so I'm going to say you're looking at 1970, late 78, early 79 the price tag on this thing was $179.99. We'll have to plug that in the inflation calculator and see what that is today. It's still got a little piece of tape on it from the yard sale I got this at, and I'm not going to tell you what I paid for it, but it was not, uh, it was not quite $179.99. Anyway, so this whole eight foot table is nothing but Atari 2600s. I've got the, the Telegames games I was telling you about, I've got a a, a wood grain four switch set in here. I've got a, a junior set in here. That's another conversation. I've got two four switch Vaders so sitting right here this junior there's four there's 52600 set in here. And that doesn't include I've actually got two more 2600s sitting down here at the end of this and they're they're actually stripped apart and they're sitting here waiting for some parts. And I'll get into that here in a little bit because once I finish up this little virtual tour, I want to talk about some some things I've discovered, some kind of cool parts, some things some folks maybe know about, maybe they don't, that you could use in your home console and computer collection. So I'm going to spend a little of my own money. I've already done it. I'm putting my ma- uh, money where my mouth is. Uh, Actually, at this point, so the back of the the table is all of my cartridges, and I've kind of got them all organized. All the Atari cartridges, I got some, I got them separated by manufacturer. Coleco, I've got the Sears branded cartridges, kind of separated the the Magics and uh, the Parker Brothers, and then you know there's a lot of lesser manufacturers spread through here. I, I don't have a total count on them. I actually might, I, I need to do that, but. Nonetheless, I do have a few boxed games. I've got a California games. I've got a uh, – well, this is actually for the 7800. This is uh, super skateboarding. And uh, I've got a Star Raiders boxed. I've got a DK Jr. sealed I've got a concentration sealed. I've got a Gravatar and Galaxian for the twenty six hundred sealed, and a handful of other games. Demon Attack, a few, a few others that are uh, that are that are boxed. And but the f- <laughs> the hardest part to digest of all this is, if you collect consoles and the like, it's all the all the controllers. I, I literally have four foot of controllers. The end of this table is nothing but controllers. There must be and this, this harkens to those days when you could walk into a thrift store. And again, I mentioned at least around here in, in Louisville, they would start to break things up. I guess they started to see the value and it made more sense to the thrift stores to piece these things out. So you might go in and you might actually find an actual Atari joystick hanging on the peg, dig around, find another, you may never find the console, but I picked up over the years tons of paddle controllers. The collection I mentioned in all the tubs, there was a bunch of controllers in there. I must have 15 or 18 sets of paddles. I've got a couple sets of driving controllers, a boxed set of driving controllers, uh three, six, nine, twelve, probably 18 to 20 Atari actual controllers in various states from it looks like it got ran over by a dump truck to darn near perfect by far, my favorite types of controllers are the the non Atari controllers, and, and I I am a big fan of uh, Suncom controllers. And my favorite controller when I when I was a Commodore kid, and when I was an Atari twenty six hundred. Well, I didn't have him as an Atari twenty six hundred. I had him uh, in the Commodore days. Was from a company called Suncom, so if you might you might want to Google these. It's Suncom Slick Stick. The base of the controller is a little bit smaller in all dimensions than an Atari controller. It's got a little smaller, so it fits in your hand, especially if you're a young kid. You know, it fits in your hand real well, and uh, the the joystick has got a small orange ball on it. And honestly, it's about it's about the diameter of. It's a little smaller than the diameter of maybe like a U.S. quarter. It's kind of hard to, you know, I'm trying to trying to think of a, a point of reference that would be useful to everybody. Actually, you know what? The diameter is is just slightly larger than the diameter of a standard button, a button on a standard Atari joystick, and the joystick itself isn't probably. Two inches tall. It's a real small little thing. They're really durable and they've got a super short throw with real positive contact is in four way or you can use eight way. I just love these things. So I actually happen to have four of those and uh, I've got one that's kind of a part stick and one I've kind of got to laugh at and I have to show this to Whitney Maybe get a picture of it. I remember this stick back in the day. I had it with my Commodore, and I sat on it, and the joystick broke because I mean, it was a steel shaft. What I ended up doing was the the little the rubber grommet, which actually, if I recall correctly, is the valve stem from a from a like a steel rim for a car. They they would use the bottom portion of the valve stem pop it through the hole in the upper part of the case, then cut it off and then insert the joystick shaft. But the the grommet was fine. So what I ended up doing was I took a bolt and just stuck the bolt through it and then wrapped the bolt in electrical tape. And there's a couple nuts run down the bolt. I guess I did that probably to give it some a little additional thickness. And then for fun, I went ahead and uh, there's four push buttons, one, you know, each of your compass points, my north, when I drilled the north, I didn't drill it very straight. But uh, I could use either the, the bolt <laughs> as a joystick, or I could fall back to the buttons. Like if I was playing a game that required like a quick left to right, like track and field or something, I could just tap the buttons instead of having to kind of wag the, or I think we've broken token terms, waggle the old joystick. So when I when I pulled that out, it kind of put a smile on my face that that was still around and uh um it just brings back good memories but the uh the other kind of cool sticks that i have is the Wico command controls so people have probably seen these they have a, a bat shaped stick and they look a lot like the bat like the the correct joystick for a berserk arcade game a little smaller though red bat type stick They got a pretty good size base. They're made by Wicco, you know the company that we know in the arcade industry for making control control parts, joysticks, and trackballs. They've got a white button on the on the bat stick and a redundant button with a switch, Uh, so you can choose: do I want to use the button on the base or do I want to use the button on the stick? Now, why they went through the extra problem or trouble not problem, of putting a switch in it, I don't have a clue it seems like it would add some additional overhead and cost but nonetheless they did it i'd like to kind of get my hands there's a version of this that's got a ball top i've i've seen them but i've never had one i kind of like to get my hands on one of them but i i have a few of these and then i also have these are made by wiko as well and they are the boss joystick the base is a little bit smaller than the command control series. They're gray with a black handle and it looks more like a flight stick. It's got like a pistol grip to it and a button on the top and they're they're kind of cool too the the one thing I never did kind of understand about them is is that the handle will rotate like 360 degrees. It just spins its little heart out. So I, I, I'm assuming that that's done for some reason. I mean, look, I'm just sitting here spinning one of them. It just goes to town. So I, I, I never did like that about them. I would have preferred it to have been fixed. But regardless, I don't know. I, I've got a few of them and it's Wicco. So overall, the quality's good. And a few other knockoff off brands. But one of the other things I've got is there was actually a trackball that would work on the 2600 and it was a Wico command control branded trackball it's got a red base similar to the the red base on the command control joysticks and it's got standard trackball parts in it so i don't think there's any difference when you take the top off of it the harness and everything looks just like the trackball from an arcade game like if i were to rip apart a Wico trackball out of a centipede and set it next to this it it I haven't compared the boards the harness looks exactly the same and as far as I know it's rebuildable with standard Wicko parts I mean if you think about it if Wicko's going to make a trackball why would they do something different you know they 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 make track they make trackballs by the millions in the day but so that's that's kind of a cool thing it's uh um I remember working with this and seeing what games it would work on and but I I'd, honestly I don't remember the game list I and I haven't got that far as I've explored the collection but so anyway, as I'm rolling through this, my next table here it's uh, 7800. So I've got a couple 7800s. Two things about the 7800. One, the joysticks. They're they're just ah, people say they're uncomfortable. I mean, they they kind of rest in your hand. You'll have a button at your thumb and a button like at your at your pointer finger. You know, so you got two buttons. There's a button on the other side, and and the the joystick. You know, kind of in the upper third of of the body, and. I don't know, maybe over a long period of time, they they, they kind of wear on you, but I, I never found much problem with them. People, however, seem to universally dislike these. The kicker with them is, I mean, it's a standard 9-pin uh, DB9 connector, just like the 2600, and you can use a 2600 joystick on it unless the game needs that second button. So you either have to have an aftermarket joystick that supports the second button, or you have to make one. So that that's the... That's the first thing, but the second thing is what kind of really hangs a lot of people up with the 7800. Now, one of the cool things about the 7800 is it will all it's backwards compatible to the 2600. So if you've got a good solid 78, you can play 7800 games and 2600 games. The one problem, like I said, the main problem is the power connector. They're really easy to break off and it's not like a an Atari 2600 Where it's uh, uh, like an eighth-inch jack, and it's it's metal and it's pretty stout. It's this little kind of plastic cheesy thing, and both of these had them broke off. And what I ended up doing long ago with these is I opened the case up and I just took out what was left of the of the jacks and uh, uh, put a little pigtail out of it with a. Eighth inch plug, so that basically I could use the same power supply, like for a twenty six hundred, and, dr- and drive the seventy eight hundred. But like I said, of the two of these that I've got, uh, both of them were broken, and I modified both of them the same way, so I could just interchange the power supplies. Got a few seventy eight hundred games and a couple boxed games, and that's not, not you know, that's that's not a super deal on the on the seventy eight hundred because at w- at one point in time there was a company and i I remember that that the the website was of course, this was so long ago it was it was actually correct for the time, but it looked like it was like nineteen ninety eight called and said, "I want my web design back and It was just a real basic kind of text site, and he he had purchased like a boatload of Old seventy of of like seventy eight hundred stock, and and it seems like I even remember the seventy eight hundred stuff being like in the bargain bin at maybe a Kmart or something because just you know look at the history of the seventy eight hundred if you're not aware of it and just the kind of the, the way Atari missed the mark and it could have almost been the NES. But it wasn't. And that's a whole other story. So there was a lot of this stock out there. And I I don't know, I've got a handful of games that are still in box and maybe the cellophane's still on them. But I've also got a bunch of stuff. Pretty much everything that's at least in the the boxes still. uh, I've got loose and maybe a couple doubles here. But one of the neat things that I did do is – when I was still messing with these, and I can't remember if I actually had arcades at the time, definitely didn't have pinballs because I was kind of late later in the pinball in the pinball crowd. There was a plug-and-play from a company called Radica, and it was Space Invaders, and I don't even think these things had multiple games. I'm pretty sure it was just Space Invaders. That's how that's how long ago this was. It wasn't like they are today where they've got 47 games in, in them. The kind of the cool thing about it was is it was redundant buttons, so you had your A and your B buttons for, for the little console, whatever they did originally. Um, well, now that I say that it's got an A and a B, I bet there was additional games in here because there was also a menu button. So, regardless, it had a, it had a nice micro switch like A and B buttons, and there was a they were redundant. So there was an A and B on the left, A and B on the right, and it has a a nice yeah, semi sturdy. I mean, not arcade quality, but fairly decent micro switch joystick. And these things had gone on clearance at Game Stops and wherever for almost nothing. And that hit the, uh, gosh, it might have actually been Atari age, early Atari age at the time. That hit the groups, and uh, people were going and buying them and just instantly ripping the guts out of them, rewiring them, and then using them for 7800s. And sure enough, that's what I did. I went and bought, uh, I think I've got three. I've got the two that are here that have been converted to 7800 joysticks. And I've got, I think I've got one upstairs still in the box because they were just cheap. I mean, they were almost giving them away at the time. They 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 didn't sell, and obviously it was it wasn't any trouble getting out getting a hold on them. So. Uh, whenever I've had the 7800 hooked up, that's what I always used was these modified TV games with the boards. I, I want to say I plugged plugged it in, played it for like four minutes. It's like, okay, well, I did that and then I instantly took, took it apart and I didn't even play the second one. I just took it right apart. Moving on down from that on the same table, I mentioned how like the 7800 was the missed NES. Here's my NES stuff. And this is one of those things that I've gone back and forth on because this... This isn't, the NES wasn't, I, it was super key to Whitney. Whitney's talked about the NES on the show quite a bit. And Whitney has a lot of memories with the NES. And, and I, I'm going to get into a story here, talk about memories. It, it Something finally hit me uh, after all the years of this retro stuff. But we'll get to that here in a second. The NES wasn't a key thing for me. I, I didn't have an NES, I've mentioned on the show before that my cousin had an NES. I did borrow it at one point in time, and I have actually played all the way through the original Zelda. So this this even goes back to the NES Mini. We've talked about that on the show as well when that was available. And, and I said, you know, Whitney, that right there, Nintendo has the opportunity to take my money finally, and I can't find one of these things. Because I was prepared to pay full boat for an NES Mini so that I can HDMI out so that I could play, replay Zelda again. Could not find one. So it just was what it was. I have a couple NESs. I'm, I'm on the fence with these things. Uh, they're really nice consoles. And I've done a little, actually done a little work on these. And I'll talk about that here in a minute. I, and I have a copy of Zelda. And I've got a couple other kind of. I don't have a lot of games. I've got Beetlejuice. I've got Elevator Action of Course, Mario Duck Hunt, Winter Games. I have a copy of Night Rider, and I've got. I put I, once I dug that out. That's over actually in my display case here in the game room, because. What's retro? What, there's nothing more retro than Knight Rider on the Hoff, right? I got a copy of Knight Rider, and somewhere around here, I'm pretty sure—I bet it's upstairs in a box with some of my Back to the Future stuff. I've got—I'm uh, I'm like 99% positive there's a Back to the Future NES game, and there, not only does it exist, I have it somewhere in this house. So yeah, so I actually, one of these, now that I think about it, I had at Louisville Arcade Expo one year. If you—if you're in the area or you made it down maybe two or three years ago. So, so every year at Arcade Expo, we try to put something out on the table, try to do something different every year. I try to keep a couple kind of real cool old school TVs. And I kinda, I've kind of got a mini collection of old school portable TVs. So I have, it's literally a portable TV with a strap on it that you put over your shoulder and it takes like 47 D-cell batteries. We were doing like mini duck hunt it has like a, a four or five inch screen. And I had this, one of these NESs set up on it and we had Duck Hunt. And then I had actually piped the output, the sound, through the, the sound system in the booth. Because when we broadcast, we actually have speakers out in front of the booth and people can come up and listen to us as we're broadcasting Friday and Saturday night at little arcade expo. So as people were playing duck hunt, you know, the sound was blaring out uh, around them, you know, emanating from the booth. It was kind of, that was, that was kind of a kind of a neat setup. I was, I was kind of proud of that one. There's a side story here too, arcade related. I have, and it's, it's around here somewhere as, as you all listen to me move cables around who out there, like I can see you raise hands. If you're old enough to remember fanfold paper, so like if you had a, an old home computer, ret- home, well, it wasn't retro at the time, a Commodore 64, an Atari, uh, or you worked in a company that had fanfold printers or tractor feed printers, and that that you know the paper would come out, it was perforated, it was like you know a constant ribbon and you would rip the perforations to get your standard eight and a half by 11 pages. And then the, the tractor feeds off the edge would tear off as well. They were perforated that fan full of paper came in, in a box. And if you, anybody out there that has dealt with this stuff, they're like, Oh yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. You know, the boxes, is pro- the boxes are probably, I don't know, 10 inches by eight inches by 14 inches tall. So I have one of these boxes right here in front of me. I'm taking the taking the hold on. We're doing we're doing foley work right now. You're hearing the sound effect. This box is full of NES sappers. I've got two sitting here on the table. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There's like eight more in this fanfold paper box. So the deal with that was is again, if I was out somewhere. I, and there was a zapper hanging there, I'd pick it up. And I oh, well, I get an N zapper for a dollar. What the plan was with those is at the time, and I still have it, I was struggling with a a versus system uh with for gun games. I really wanted to play like Hogan's Alley and Duck Hunt. I had I had a couple Nintendo guns, I had the Versus system, uh I had the the ROMs, the monitors were spot on, they were beautiful. I just couldn't get any consistent use out of the guns. I took the guns apart 50 times. I mean, cleaned everything. I mean, it would work, but it just wasn't. And eventually I gave up on it. If I looked at it now, it might be something with the opto. I mean, I could look at it with a little bit more of an experienced eye. But way back then... I learned that it was really easy to convert an NES zapper to work on an arcade game. So every time I saw one, I'd pick it up. You know, my intention was, was to convert a couple for me. And then if I was going through the trouble of opening those things up and doing the mods way back in the day, then I'd offer them to friends and and all that for a couple bucks. And that never happened. And all I've done is store them and move them around. Now I've got a box full of a fan full paper box full of them but so yeah the the NES stuff I uh, through this collection there's going to be decisions made and that's why it's all spread out to remind me what I've got so all right just a couple more things I promise I'm almost done so uh, I'm back on the other side of the room this five-foot table on the very corner of it I have a Jaguar a boxed Jaguar boxes in decent shape handful of games I got this at a yard sale and at the time KB was still clearing stuff out. So I got a couple boxed games, uh Dino Dudes and whatever else is down here, uh, Burnout and one more um but I've got a Team Tap brand new right in the box with a KB sticker on it. So the team tap would allow you to play multiplayer adapter for the Jaguar 64 bit interactive entertainment system, tap into multiplayer fun for up to four players. And I paid a whopping $1.99 for that and uh, never used it. So yeah, like I said, I've got a Jag. Um, I don't know what to do with that. Cause I know Jaguars in all fairness, Jagu- there's a couple dollars sitting in that and uh it doesn't hold a place in my heart so that may end up going just just because on the rest of this table now this is this is kind of neat i've got my 5200 collection and uh the i <laughs> i think i i could be imagining things i've got 35200s And I think I'm missing one. (laughs) I feel that there's another 5,200 around here somewhere. It's driving me crazy on two levels. One that I think I've got another and also that I can't find it. (laughs) So am I remembering incorrectly, or am I remembering correctly and I can't find it? So regardless, I know definitely no one of these. Again, I walked into a thrift store back in the day and I was like, well, there's a 5200, and they were just—I remember—they were just starting to kind of break stuff up. So I found—I want to say the 5200—and the was as it was a power supply, and the joysticks were in a separate bag, and uh, uh, then there was a bunch of games that I just had to pick up individually, and there was also the trackball for the 5200 the Proline arcade action trackball controller accessory and this thing's kind of cool it's got a i've never had one apart but it's got keypads on it like the controllers it's got a trackball it very much feels wicco esque good size panel so it's 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 nice and sturdy and a bunch of games and then the other two at one point in time on atari age A gentleman was making some homebrews, and I believe I'd have to go back through here. I think it was this one right here. Yeah, it was a homebrew Space Invaders is what it was. And as it turned out, he had um, a couple 5200s that he was looking to get rid of. And what I ended up doing was buying, uh, buying the couple 5200s. And uh, the controllers that he had, and you know, again, this was so long ago, and this stuff was so ubiquitous that it was kind of a no-brainer at the time. And I had these working. If you, if anyone's ever had a fifty-two hundred, the weak spot is the controller, and the the story is is that whoever designed them was not a gamer. And it's kind of cool in that it's analog. So it's got an analog joystick, you know, that's, that's used in some games because with, a, with an analog stick, you know, like, like we all know, especially if you're a modern gamer, you can, the, you can write the game to understand the position of the stick and say, okay, well, I want to move a little slower because it just barely moved. Or I want to move a lot faster because it's all the way over the edge. And then, of course, you've got full 360-degree control. But the stick doesn't self-center, so if you're playing a game that really needs like a hard four directions, like say Pac-Man or Dig Dug, it's it's a bear because, the, like I said, the stick doesn't self-center and you've got that full range of motion. And the other real weak point of these is there's a keypad. There's a numeric keypad in the face of it. There's at the top, there's three buttons, start, pause, and reset. You could actually pause the games. And then there's shoulder buttons. They're kind of like a modern shoulder button, but they're right where your thumb is. You can play left or right-handed, and there's two buttons, so you've got the equivalent of like two fire buttons. They're they're terrible for the contacts, just not working over time. Basically, they they work like a like a remote control does for like a VCR or something, where they've got little little carbon discs in there that make the contact. Just they are just super cheap, and if you ever get into one, I believe it's Best Electronics out of California. They still service and sell a lot of new old stock Atari pieces, and they have made new uh, flexible, there's a, all that; those contacts are on these little flex PCB things. Uh, they've remade all that, and they actually even make them with gold contacts. So you can get a really nice set of 5200 controllers set up at, at, with not too much trouble. Getting through all that, well, one more thing, and then I'll get to the core thing here that really kind of was a neat neat kind of awakening for me is also i mentioned earlier I had a couple coleco visions and uh, um again i mean it's just it's two coleco visions <laughs> and, and you know they're working and they're i'll get into that kind of here in a second some of the stuff i've done but to round out the collection uh thus far the console stuff is you know again the two coleco visions handful of games probably about 20 games that's something else that wasn't super near and dear to my heart and Honestly, it's already on the go. They're already on the go list. Over the span of this five foot table and the tail end of this last eight foot table, is my Commodore collection. This is the thing that really has my heart. I know Whitney. Whitney has got a super fun place for the twenty six hundred and the NES. And for me, it's the Commodore collection. And when I was kind of going through all this stuff and testing things, I. Still have my original bread bin, and I still have an original 1541 floppy disk drive. And I say an original because the first one I had died long ago. This one I actually got from one of the one of my buddies way back in the day, and doing a little trading around. Uh, so it's it's air quotes an original to me, but it isn't my very first one. I set it all down. I plugged it all into a, a 1701 monitor. I knew the monitor worked. The Commodore 64 came right up. The 1541 came right up. And I opened up one of my disc boxes and I shoved a disc in there, had a fast load cartridge in there, hit the directory listing. It read the disc. I selected a game and I just sat there and looked at Mario Brothers on a Commodore that hadn't been turned on in probably 25 years. And that's when it kind of hit me. And I mentioned this to Whitney. In all the games that has passed through my hands, console, home computer, arcade, pinball, especially arcade because I was more of an arcade kid, that I've had pass through my hands. Games that I have here today that I remember playing and favoriting back in the day. Tron, Tempest, Gorf, Battle Zone, Time Pilot. I have defined definite strong memory of those games and seeking those games out. Of all of those games, I've never kind of had a moment like I had when I sat here and I first saw that blue screen come up with the blinking cursor and it was ready to rock and roll and then it worked. And it was like being it was like being 10 again and it was it was kind of a surreal moment and, and it was, uh, um, I, you know, I wish I had done it earlier <laughs> and I was kind of shocked that I kind of, that that, that brought back the, that memory to me because like I said, you know, we talked about games over the years, uh, what a lot of this stuff means to us and what's our favorite game and what do we remember from childhood and I just went through a list and there's reasons, there's specific reasons I have those titles You know, and a couple of them, like Time Pilot's a good example. Time Pilot isn't what people would call an A game. It's maybe a mid B grade game. But to me, that's a key game in my game room, because I have a strong memory of that. But geez, when I turned on that 64, that was totally different. The Commodore stuff is (laughs) staying every bit of it. And there's a lot of it. Because over the years, I was able to go through and fortunately find stuff back when, when it was kind of available. And so I guess now it's going to serve me well because I've got spares and uh, I've got a, a fair number of 1541 disc drives. I'll get into here in a second, how, how everything's kind of lined out and what I, what I've got in front of me, but, uh, and what I've, some of the work that I've had to do, but all this stuff is definitely staying so much so that I have already given serious thought to rearranging my shop. Uh, in such a way that I can make a cubby hole to keep a 64 and a 1541. And uh, uh, I've got a, a 17, I've got uh, mentioned that 1701 monitor. It's kind of, it's, it's companion. It's little slightly different model is 1702. I've still got my 1702. So that, you know, making a cubby for the 1702 and setting up a Commodore space and just sitting down and enjoying it every once in a while and relaxing and playing some old school games. So, all right. So that's kind of the quick virtual, uh, audio walkthrough here. I'm going to switch this back over to this other mic. Okay. So I should be back on my studio mic, and hopefully that sounds a little bit better and should be ideally a little less noisy and hopefully a little bit more consistent in terms of the sound. So all that stuff is what I am i am surrounded by right now. I have a little room, you know, little, this is definitely first world problems. Don't don't think by any stretch of the imagination I'm complaining. I've got a little sliver of space that I can use to walk down through the center of my game room. And I, honestly, if Whitney had made it over to record... I'm not sure where I would have put him. I probably would have set him in the middle of all this and forced him to kind of just look at it for, in fear that it was going to cave in on him. Now with all that kind of out of the way, let's talk a little bit about some of these repairs. And this is kind of where we're getting into the spending my money and learning a few things if you're, if you're inclined to have a collection of any of this stuff, or the Commodore stuff or the ColecoVision stuff or definitely the Atari stuff. And I'm going to start with what's near and dear to my heart The the Commodore. And specifically I mentioned that 1702 monitor. And I knew going into this, my original 1702 was dead. And it had died long ago. And I do remember taking the back of the case off. The and this was way before I had anything to do with arcade games. I didn't know what I was looking at. Not a clue. And I tell you that the arcade game especially the video game and working on monitor served me well because I pretty much, I pulled that case off and I pretty much went right to the initial problem. and I was like, there it is. And there was a a pretty large sand block resistor in the power supply section and if if you've got or have worked on or have even seen a a, a GO7 the the perfect example of this probably translated to an arcade monitor is a GO7 and that sand block resistor that's on the left side of the as you look in the back toward the back of the tube that's on the left side of the chassis it's using the power supply section and basically it at least in the 1702 here I'd have to go back and look don't know I bet it's the same it's used on the output side of the power supply section to uh, feed back into the voltage regulator. And uh, that, that's, if memory serves, that's exactly what was kind of going on here. But that sucker was burned up. And what ended up happening was is the hot in it, the horizontal output transistor, hey, there's heard of those in the arcade world, right? It had shorted, dead shorted. And uh, my guess is that it had drawn too much power and uh, it burned up a couple other smaller resistors, smaller passives. It just cooked that big sandblock resistor. So when it was all said and done, I had to order a couple parts because I, I didn't have an equivalent for that big resistor. It was some, I, I didn't have it, noted, but it was some wild ohm rating, nothing like anything I had. As it turned out, I was able to use the same hot that I, I've got a bunch of them. That you would use in a Wells Gardner K seven thousand. Now it's way overkill in terms of current handling capacity for this little monitor. I think these things are. I might have to throw a tape on it here and pause the show. If oh my, they're I think they're bigger than twelve inches, maybe thirteen or fourteen. I mean they're not big monitors by by. They were big. In the day, by today's standards, they're small. Obviously, yeah. Like I said, I was able to pull a hot out of my parts bins here that would fit the bill, but was like twice the capa- the current handling capacity that this little monitor needed. While I had it apart, I did a cap kit because that's what you do. It's you know if you got an arcade monitor open, you're gonna do a cap kit in it if it freshen that sucker up and. There was probably three times the caps in that as you would find in a classic arcade monitor like a Geo 7 or 4900. I felt like yeah, that was a never-ending process, but I... I put a rejuvenator on it and just kind of just touched it a little bit, just shot it a little bit to clean it up. And man, it's a pretty monitor. I, I, it took a lot of time to do it, but I'm so glad that I did it. You know, So my recommendation there is, as you know, if you've got a classic home computer, treat it just like an arcade monitor. I mean, think about the wear and the age that's on that. And I know a lot of people now are collecting televisions. There's quite a few CRT groups that are on uh, on Facebook and they're not just talking like arcade CRT rts They're talking about uh, the PVMs like that were used in broadcast studios or, or medical facilities, and they're even collecting just televisions, like tube TVs. People are posting the spreadsheets of their lists of their model numbers of what they've got, and, and they're using them just to watch stuff off VCR, to... You know, what can I hook to them? They're trying to get modern Rokus on them. And they're also using them for classic gaming, you know, classic gaming consoles, Atari's and ColecoVisions and all that stuff. And, I, you know, my takeaway here is, is that those consumer grade b- devices don't generally see the use that the commercial machine's going to use. They're still 20 to 40 years old. So if that's something that's near and dear to your heart and it's part of your collection, why wouldn't you open it up and service it just like you would if you got a Tron? So you know, it it made a huge difference comparing it to an un-updated seventeen oh one, and the monitors are basically the same. I, if memory serves, the only difference between the O two and the O one is um, I think they changed the tube vendor, but uh, uh, and why they changed the model number, I don't know. Actually, I need to dig into it a little bit more, but um, th- they are essentially the same. A uh, little chassis difference, I know that. And I think that, like I said, the tube vendor, they're basically interchangeable. And just, just looking at them, looking at an unupdated 1701 versus this freshly capped out 1702, it was just like if you were to recap that video game that you that you just picked up. So I highly recommend it. My original Commodore 64 lived. That was awesome. And I had two other 64s. And as luck would have it, both were dead. And the, the kicker here is that, you know, in the arcade and the pinball world, if you get into something that's proprietary, think about like some kind of pl- either a, a plastic on a pinball, you know, something that is only for that game or a mech that was only used in that series of game or maybe a couple games or even in some of your arcade games like Gorf. Gorf has uh, you, the speech chip in a Gorf that that Votrax SC01 that was used in Gorf. I think it was used in Wizard of War. And I believe actually Stern used them. That might be this. I could, don't hold me to this, but I think that SEO one was the speech chip in Berserk and Frenzy. Don't hold me to that. Nonetheless, those things are like hen's teeth. That company has been gone for decades. There's some other chips like in, in that Gorf card cage, hard to get. Company's gone, out of production. Think of some of the chips that's like in the vector section of your, of Tempest or other vector games. Hard to get. Well, when you get into these classic home computers like the Commodore and the same thing on the Atari 2600, there's proprietary chips in those. And that's kind of what I ran into. You know, you just can't go and say, well, I need XYZ and either find, you know, there's a blue million of them and you can pull it from a parts board or it's still produced or an equivalent still produced. These were proprietary chips. In the history of Commodore, if you've ever seen a chip with MOS on it, like it's MOS Tech, that was owned by Commodore. So it was easy for them to go out and say, okay, well, I just we're going to make our own chip to do our thing because th- they didn't really even have to contract with a third party. It was them. Oh, here, perfect example. Gottlieb System 1 pinballs. Over the course of the show, I know I've talked about, I prefer to repair the original boards. With some exceptions, for the most part, there isn't anything that you can't get for most all of your pinball boards, your board sets. And if the parts aren't made because the community is so vibrant, there are there are known substitutes or third party solutions short of all out catastrophic physical damage, either like run over by a dump truck or just so ate up with corrosion that it's just darn near impossible, there's no reason not to repair your factory boards. The, the flip side of that as well is, or the continuation of that with the support in the community, it's a known thing. I've had some third-party boards in my hands, and I know that the, okay, well, this coal's not firing. Well, this board doesn't match up with the factory boards. The, the positions don't match up and the drivers are different. Maybe this company is using MOSFETs instead of your old school transistor type drivers. And I can't find schematics. I mean, I've literally had to trace the wire to the edge connector and then trace and then just start strobing through all the, the MOSFETs on some of these third party boards to find out which one controls the thing that's not working. Gotlib to bring this back around full circle here, Gotlib, the System 1 stuff, those were Rockwell chips. So Rockwell designed that system for them. And Rockwell, being Rockwell, having a chip production facility, they said, well, we're going to do all this stuff and we're just going to make the chip. And that's what those, if you've ever seen a System 1, uh, they call them spider chips. The the legs just reach out of it like like spider legs and it just kind of sits there on the board and stares at you all ugly. Uh, you can't get replacements for those things because they were made for Rockwell, proprietary to the design. You it's not like a third party would make those chips or it was something off the shelf and everybody made them. In the case of a rock, in in the case of the system ones, that's one of the few exceptions where I'm like, yeah, it's just replace it because it won't be the same layout, but at least you can you know, the, the the aftermarkets are generally made with serviceable parts, things you can get, which is more acceptable than the trouble of trying to find a literal hens tooth of a part to fix the factory board in the case of the system one stuff. All right, so you run into that a lot with a 2600 and the Commodore stuff. And that's that's what I ended up doing with the uh, uh the the two dead 64s. I took two and made one. One of them had a dead VIC-2 chip, which is um the uh, uh video chip, if memory serves. And then the other, I'm sure everyone's heard of the the Commodore SID, the SID chip that makes the all the wonderful sounds and music effects that you get out of a Commodore dead. Those were proprietary chips. There's aftermarket-ish replacements for some of the stuff done with FPGAs, but they're not the same. And and, you know, and people that make them generally will tell you that. You know, you, there's there's reviews on YouTube of especially SID chips. Where they're comparing not only the different runs of the Commodore, because Commodore didn't even make them sound the same. It almost got to the point where it was like, well, if it beeps and boops, let it out the door. And as the as the run of the 64 drug on, and they were getting like super bottom bin in terms of pricing... Those SID chips were like wonky. The folks that come up with these solutions, they do the best they can, I'm sure. But so there, there's a few of these are kind of available in the aftermarket because the Commodore community is so big. But it, a lot of it's proprietary stuff and you're robbing from a from a machine. You know, you, you, you got to make a decision. And that's kind of what I did. I had one that was really rough, physically just rough. And what ended up happening was, is that is where I s- basically... S- Sourced, you know, I pulled the uh, uh, I can't remember if I pulled the Vic two out of it or the SID out of it to get the really nice one working. So when it all said and done, I've got two original bread bin style. That's the the kind of that grayish case, Commodore classic Commodore sixty four. So I've got two of them. I've got my original and I've got a backup, and I kind of really want a backup with these because of those proprietary chips. I've got two Commodore sixty four Cs. So that was. If anyone's ever seen those, they're like this light tan color and they're deep. They're, they're, instead of being kind of tall and not very deep, they're very short and the keyboard lays closer to the desk, kind of like a modern keyboard does, but they're a lot deeper. They they were kind of like the, we're going to try to revitalize the Commodore 64 and make it look new, but it's the same thing. So I've got two of those and they actually did some, some cost reductions in there. So some of those proprietary chips... It's different in the C versus the classic bread bin style Commodore. All right, well, I want to keep this collection. So I've got a good one and I got a spare. I do have some VIC-20s. I actually had three VIC-20s and I got in a situation where I don't have my original one because I sold that back in the day. I remember selling it. I can remember staging that thing on a TV for someone to come over and look at it and i uh, put the i put an advertisement in the local newspaper no internet obviously and i sold my vic 20 to help finance my 64 or something for my 64 i think no i got the 64 for christmas so i don't have my original vic 20 over the years i've managed to pick up 3 and I've got three boxed VIC-20s, and one of them is pretty complete, and down to one that's basically a VIC-20 in a power supply thrown in a box. No paperwork or anything like that. So of the three, I had one real sweet one, and I had to combine the, the lesser of the remaining two into the 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 next best of the remaining two to make a second working machine. So, wh- and what I've also done is I've done this is if I'm going to do it, these things have been sitting for so long. I'm taking these things apart. I'm taking all the electronics out of them. I'm taking them outside. I'm scrubbing them out. I've, I'm cleaning them. And because, you know, if I got them apart and I'm spending the time, I'm going to go ahead and, and clean them up. And uh, the uh, the VIC-20s were a little grungy, but man, my old, my old 1702 monitor <laughs> was... F- filthy i'd actually use that monitor i've forgotten about this you talk about a little nostalgia that was my tv forever i had this it, it, a lot of people out there may be like oh i remember these things several companies sold standalone tuner boxes And I guess it was for people like me that had a home computer and wanted to try to double up, you know, the computer companies would sell you a computer and you could connect it with, uh, or an RF connection to a television and you could use your TV as a monitor. Well, you could do the inverse if you wanted to spend up and get a nice monitor, which was classically, typically a little better picture, cleaner, sharper than a television, but more expensive. You could also then go buy these little boxes that were TV tuners and then use that monitor as your television. That's what I did. I I remember going to service merchandise and buying it, and I still have it. It's actually back here on one of the shelves. Can't remember who made it. It's this uh, little white box, and it was probably 10 inches wide and it had a little flip-up door on it. And what you would do is you would you would choose, you know, UHF or whatever with this little, like little slider switch. And then it had this little wheel that you would spin that would move a potentiometer and you would tune in your channel and then the, on the corresponding button, you had a bunch of stickers and you could put like a little channel number sticker on there. You could set it up however you wanted it. And you just go up and hit a button and it would change the channel. And that was my TV forever, which is honestly probably why that hot ended up burning out because it this, this this TV had a lot of hours. I mean, this monitor had a lot of hours on it. Anyway, I digress. So I got a couple of Vic 20s, which I'm happy about. And uh, I've got, like I said, I got a stack of, of 1541s. My 1541 worked. I have since taken it apart, cleaned it, you know, clean the, uh, I should, probably should have cleaned it before I put the disc in it, but I've used the disc a lot, so I didn't ruin it, but I cleaned the, uh, uh cleaned the reed head, clean the, uh, the rails, the reed head rides on, gave it a little lubrication. And basically I've done that with all these 1541s other than one, and I've got a, a good selection of solid 1541s. I had to, had to do a couple repairs because one of the things these things are bad about is just like... Like happens in a lot of our arcade games i've had this happen especially on like space invaders boards tantalum uh, caps they'll fail and when they fail they fail catastrophically uh, they'll flame out and sure enough i had two of them i, I plugged them in and because uh, i'm crazy like that and uh light come on i was like oh that's cool and then here comes the magic smoke and my gosh the basement stunk and it was a flamed out tantalum cap in these things. And overall they're actually the, the the Commodore drives are their own computers. A lot of the, a lot of these classic game, uh, classic home computers, the drives are controlled by the computer themselves. The Commodore is a computer computer. The Commodore disk drive is a computer. It's got its own uh, 6502 in there, and it's got its own ROM, and it's got its own RAM, and it just takes commands from the host computer, the VIC-20 or the 64 or the 128, Commodore 128. You you can actually run them by themselves if if you felt so inclined to do so uh, in certain situations like copying disks and the like. But so yeah, anyway, yeah, I've got... uh, Uh, A couple of those running now. So I've got some spares. I'm really happy about that. And I I did have one that had a bad IC in it. And fortunately it was a common part other than the tantalum caps and the one, it was a 6522 controller. There wasn't much problem there. So I was able to really kind of salvage all those and switching over to the 2600s. I went through those as well. You know, I mentioned that I had two laying here and I'm going to talk about that when I really get down to spending my money while they're stripped apart. But I, I went through and was testing, and stuff. And one of the ones that's actually sitting here, it had a dead TIA in it. That's a television interface adapter. And that's, here we are, that's where Atari, they were building out or sourcing out, as far as I know, Atari never had their own chip production facility. They were building these proprietary chips. And if you think about like the pokies that are in arcade games, the, the pot and key I see that is used in a, in a lot of arcade games, those are used in the consoles as well. The 7800, there's several 7800 games that include a pokey in the game, in the cart. So, you know, that that's one of the sources for arcade repairs. I'd mentioned earlier, there was such a glut of the 7800 stuff on the market you could go get your hands on like ball blazer was one of the one of the games. You could go get your hands on a stack of ball blazers from whoever that gentleman was I mentioned that had you know had the site where he was selling them off because he bought out the stock. It, I'm gonna have to try to find that site and see if I can get it in the show notes. He may still have it up just for nostalgia's sake, but it was like he had pictures of his kids and it was like pallets of 7800 games and they were sitting there like at a table and there were stacks of 7800 box games as tall as their his kiddos were but people would go by like ball blazer in a couple there's a couple of those 7800 games just to get the pokey out of them because the ball blazers were almost giveaway. But in reality, the chip in it had a lot of value to fix arcade games. So Atari was also kind of famous for doing that. But they, as far as I know, they went to a third party for these proprietary chips. They didn't own a chip fab company like Commodore did. And the T is an example that I've got two bare boards set next to me and I've got their cases set in here as well. I've gone and scrubbed them and cleaned them and, and really got them ready to go. I'm going to talk about those again, like I said, here in a second. But I, I had a physically damaged Atari 2600 Jr. I mentioned I've got one of those earlier. I got a complete one over here. When they got down to the super cost reduced, let's try to make as much money out of this as we can. The uh, 7800 failed. Let's go back to what we know. Uh, let's make Atari fun again, or have fun again. I can't remember what the what the campaign was. Something to that effect. That was the Junior, and it was kind of like two thirds the size of a, uh, a twenty six hundred, and it was styled kind of like a seventy eight hundred in terms of just like a flat top on it, a stainless steel or chromed like band across it to kind of look like a baby seventy eight hundred. I happen to have one of those that was like just just crushed and it had a good Tia in it. So that's kind of like what you get into a lot with the, some of the commodore stuff. Unless you can find a, a third party that has remade that, you, you gotta scavenged from parts machines. And so just kind of a word to the word to the wiser. If you get into collecting some of this stuff, if you've got like I do, a collection that is hoarded away and you've shifted to arcade and you want to bring it out and start to use it again, like I'm kind of doing honestly, or you're collecting today and you're maybe not aware of this, or you're considering jumping into the boat and say, okay, well the 2600 or the Coleco vision or whatever was near and dear to me, I'm going to start collecting it. This is just some, some stuff I've learned (laughs) in going through this and hopefully it'll, it'll help everybody out. But Twenty six hundred and the Commodore. There's a lot of stuff in there that's proprietary gear. So I'm not saying don't do it, but I'm saying you know, Atari's C- are easy because there's the, there's still tons of those out there. Have a spare. <laughs> Just and and treat them with a little respect, uh, like we never did when we were ten and twelve. You know, so that you don't end up damaging a chip or something, but my nes's i got them running and this is kind of where we're getting into the spending some of my money part and and, and where I, what i've done with with some of this stuff additionally here is we'll start with the nes's and both of them had the classic blinking light deal and that is like always the 72 pin connector everyone talks about pulling the card out and blowing on it and putting it back in and I don't think you're doing anything doing that. I mean, I think honestly, all that you're doing is you're just reseeding the cartridge. You're pushing back down the cartridge in the the front loader NES. You're scraping maybe a little crud off all the pins and you're giving them an opportunity to make another, make contact. And that's, in my opinion, probably actually what's what's going on. You know, blowing in the cartridge isn't doing anything. Anyway. That 72-pin connector, Joe Stiff at Louisville Arcade Expo mentioned this to me. There is a way to, air quotes, repair that connector by boiling it. And sure enough, I went out and I looked at it, and there's people that have boiled it. And The thought is is that 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 just bakes off, boils off, cooks off, whatever, all the grime and junk that's on those pins. The other side of that, though, is, is those pins, just like the edge connectors on our arcade games, after so many uses, so many insertions and removals, they're bent and they're not making good physical contact. There's just not pressure there on the cart, on the edge of the cart. The replacements are eight bucks. I bought three off eBay and I only had two NESs. I'm actually going to do one for a buddy of mine, fix one of his machines. Just They were eight bucks. I just, you know, all right, send me three. The, the kicker there is... Honestly, just getting the thing and doing it. The NES doesn't even have any of the proprietary Nintendo bits like the cartridges themselves do. It's just a Phillips head screwdriver, you take it apart, you don't even have to solder. I was shocked. You take the case apart, you take the shielding, the RF shielding off of it, you unscrew the board, it literally unplugs, plugs back in, put it all back together, and you're done. And you know, away you go. So if you've got that blinking problem, there's a thing that a lot of people do where they disable the security check. So there's one I see in the NES that is responsible or partially responsible for doing some checks against the cart, and this is what Nintendo was doing to dissuade people from from creating third-party carts. And I guess it worked to a degree. I know Tengen did a few carts. Some of those are worth some money if you got some Tengen carts sitting around. So it worked for the most part because I, I, I'm I'm really only aware of Tengen and there's. There, you know. As soon as I say that, I bet there's a couple others out there that did third-party carts. But for the most part, all your carts are Nintendo. Some of that checking back and forth was at the hand of a particular IC in there. And the way you disable is you just cut a leg. I mean, Google disable or just Google um, disable security check NES or NES blinking, and I'm sure you'll find 47, you know, YouTube videos on how to do it. It's just one leg. To me if it's if it's a physical issue, you know, in the, the school of thought there is is that of the 72 pins there's only like 60 something that the game actually needs to run, but that chip utilizes I guess the balance of those pins, all the 72 pins to do whatever it does. So by disabling the security check, you have a better chance of the cartridge working because you're not relying on all 72 pins being 100% good. And I mean, to me, I didn't disable it. I didn't cut it. To me, it was $8 and 10 minutes to take it apart. Both of them worked, and I was playing Zelda. So I'm probably going to end up keeping at least one of them. Honestly, I'll probably keep both of them, but <laughs> I'm surely going to keep one of them because I kind of do want to go back and play the original Zelda. I know there's a bajillion ways to do it, but I got a NES. I'll play it on the NES, so... The Coleco Visions, oh man, if if you're out there looking to get into Coleco Visions, I was jazzed to get one because I know everyone talks about, and, and it's true how much better the graphics are. And, and I mean, Donkey Kong is the pack-in for the most part and it looks really good, but I don't see keeping these. And like I said, both of these are already on the go list. One of them is already spoken for, the second's on the go list. It's not because they're not cool. It's just because they don't hold a place for me. But if you get them, they have some pretty weak points. They don't hold up well over time, but they're easily repairable. I don't believe there's anything in there that's proprietary. Not that comes to mind. It's all off-the-shelf parts. The only the, the main problem, not the only, the main problem is the power switch. So if you've got Williams games like Defender, in that series of games that had that very similar hardware platform, Defender joust robotron they use the the tri-voltage rams the rams needed plus five minus five and 12 volts one of the common things to do and they ran really hot one of the common things to do to kind of help bulletproof those those games those williams games is you replace it with a single voltage ram that's readily available today uh, that just runs on five volts that run a lot cooler But to do that, there's a little switcheroo you have to do in the wiring harness because the five volt comes in on a different pin. Bob Roberts used to sell a little adapter that plugged in line and they're easy to make that just kind of rerouted, basically dropped the five, uh, if if the power supply you had in it still generated minus five and 12, it basically just dropped it, it disconnected, it dead ended it, and then it jostled around the five volt where it needed to be and you just swapped the rams out and and away you went. The Vision uses the exact same RAM. And uh, you can 5-volt mod that. That RAM's easily available. There's a cool site, Console 5. And I'll put a link in the show notes just for Console 5. It's worth just taking a look at in the bigger picture. You can get the kit from them. I think it's like 10 bucks, And there's eight RAMs in here. And it comes with sockets. Now, I'll tell you this. Speaking of Williams games, Williams made some awesome games, but man, their boards were terrible. You want to talk about something you look at sideways and sneeze on and it blows the traces apart? Williams boards. If you've ever tried to just des- desolder something, if you don't have good tools and a lot of patience, you're going to lift a pad, you're going to pull a trace up. I mean, they're, they're, they're fun. Clico Visions are kind of that way. So if you're going to get into a Clico Vision and you want to do the RAM swap on it, I'm not discouraging you. Don't go, but I'm going to tell you, don't go after it with like solder wick and try try to do it. I do not suggest that. You really need good desoldering tools, or you might want to leverage a, a pal that that has them. Now, I didn't mod, ram mod these. The big thing that I need to do with these was clean the power switch, desolder that sucker. You've got to like spread the case apart because they're crimped together, and both of these had this crazy green goo in them. And the only thing I can assume is, is that that was like a dielectric grease from the factory and it just broke down over time. So what ended up, hap- what ends up happening, as I understand, is that goo is in there. Then it, it causes connection issues, which causes power issues, which causes issues with that RAM, because if it's not getting good power feed on, on all five minus five and the 12 volts, then you're. you're you're out to lunch because the game, the the game will crash. So as silly as it is, the power switch is like the Achilles heel of the the Coleco vision. So I took them apart. I scrubbed them like I did the Commodores I mentioned in these Ataris. And I'm outside with a hose and a brush and cleaning all these things up because I figured if I had it apart, I was going to go ahead and kind of doll them up and get them cleaned up. The other thing that was real bad in them, is the controller ports? They're not soldered real well. It almost kind of reminded me of like a bootleg arcade board. You know, it probably worked really good when it was new, and it wasn't designed to last forever. I've seen some Ataris that have been beat to death, and the the, the nine pin port for the joystick, which gets abused, is pretty well good to go. And the the visions, they just didn't hold up. I, I don't know why. And if you if you've seen a CLECO vision, they've kind of got this hole. This rectangular cutout in the top where the controllers set in, so it's kind of made where the plug is out of the way, and they they've got like a little dock for the controllers. So I, I wouldn't imagine these were plugged and unplugged as much as my like my Commodore was and my twenty six hundred was, but they just didn't look good. You know, they just they were cracked. The the joints were cracked. So if you've got a ColecoVision, Vision, you're looking at ColecoVision, again. The the big the big things there is RAM that power switch. There's no replacement that I was able to find. You can open them up. Like I said, you have to split them apart. You can open them up and clean them. And uh, uh, then just honestly give them a real good once over and look for anything. Anything that looks odd, resolder it. Oh, and the other thing that's really odd about these is their RF out is not very good. That seems to be something common that I've read across the internet. I feel that the picture could be better. I must have had these apart, I don't know, I say 30 times. I must have had them apart a half a dozen times. I'm like, did I miss something? Is there something? Uh, I recapped them. There's only about four or five caps in them. There's a couple caps hidden in the RF module. I uh, said, well, that's not a problem. It would come and go. They were even inconsistent. They were just really bad about Radio and in RF interference. My suggestion is: is you need a really good, heavy shielded RCA cable to make that connection to your television. Make sure you you know these are channel three, channel four. If you're doing RF, one of them favor channel three, and one of them favor channel four. Try different combinations. It literally was just kind of baffling to me how weird the RF was with these. You know, I could set down an Atari Twenty Six Hundred and get a really for an Atari Twenty Six Hundred. Get a really good picture. And I think a lot of people composite mod those they are a little bit more complex to composite mod. I think the kits are about 50 bucks. But if I was keeping this... Just because of the, like I said, how variable it was. I mean, just how inconsistent it was just between power on and power offs with the same cables and the same television. It wasn't massive, but it was enough that I could tell it. I'd probably just do the composite mod and just completely ditch the RF. It's what most people would do with modern stuff. Still a cool system, but really kind of not for me. Speaking of the composite mod, that's now, let me circle back to why these two Bear 2600s are sitting here. I'm waiting for the composite kit for them. On the 2600, they run about 10 to 12 bucks. They're all over eBay. There's documentation on doing it. I mean, you could breadboard it if you've got a, a moderate selection of arcade parts. It's you, you've got the pieces. It's a couple passives, a couple resistors, and a very common transistor that that if you do pinball stuff, I, I'm sure you've got in your toolbox or the equivalent thereof. The thing about me ordering the kits, though, the PCBs done, they're populated. It comes with the the shielded wire to make my connections in and out. And it comes with the the female RCA jacks that you would that you would put on the back of the unit. I just looked at it, I'm like, I don't have a selection of those jacks. I'm gonna do two of these. I'd need six. I'd have to order them anyway. By the time I had them shipped and, you know, all these kits, they're already color coded. You know, you'll get a jack that's that's yellow for your video. And then these aren't stereo, but what they'll do is they'll just join your right and your left, your white and your red together. But you'll already get your color-coded jacks, and it's just done. I don't have to sit there and fiddle around and cut down a little breadboard PCB, and I just eBay it. Done. Ten bucks to the door. What's going to end up happening, and uh, this put a little smile on my face, and, and listeners of the show, long-time listeners of the show will, will remember I gave my niece Emma my Game Boy. She was born in the wrong decade. <laughs> she is she um she is she'll wear vintage clothes like well, she was brought I say usually when you say born in the wrong decade, you're like, well that's a child that person's a child of the eighties, even though they were born in the two thousands. Emma is of the fifties through the eighties. <laughs> Let me just put it that way. And, uh, uh, when, uh, I was going through all this, I, I it, so, oh, the, 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 the Game Boy story real quick for those that never heard it. She'd asked me about it. We talked a little bit about it. I knew I had a Game Boy. My Game Boy was pretty darn nice. I still had all the box, all the foam, all the, the warranty cards, everything, but it had screen problems and it, it's a Typical Game Boy thing, and look, you just have to take it apart. You take a soldering iron, and you just strobe it across where the ribbon cable connects to the sides of the, the display, and it'll heat it up enough and resolder the connections, and Bob's your uncle. you got to work in Game Boy again. It had that problem. <clears throat> Pardon me. So, man, this is difficult when it's just me. I don't have Whitney to play off of, to take a breath and take a drink and... Mm, Pardon me, I've actually got to talk straight through <laughs> all this. So uh, uh, I got my Game Boy out. I had all the bits to open it up because it did have the proprietary bits. I happened to have those and I fixed it and I gave it to her and she was just so excited. And she goes and hangs out with her friends and they're playing stuff on her phone and they're doing, and she's got phones and modern stuff too. She's sitting over the corner playing a Game Boy, like an original Game Boy. Anyway, fast forward, I asked my sister, I said, you'd think Emma would like a 2600? And Brittany, my sister, Brittany, she's, let let me find out. Two days later, I'm with my family and I'm showing my sister a picture of this, of everything I just walked all of y'all through. scrolling through the pictures and I got to the pictures of of the Atari stuff, the 2600 stuff. And Emma's behind me like three steps and she jumps over my shoulder and she goes, oh, look an Atari. And my sister just looked at me. She said, there's your answer. I've gone through these 2600s. I've recapped them. I mean, there's not like a lot of caps on them, but there is a couple caps on them. I had two broken switches. I had to eBay those. I got two new old stock switches. So they're repaired. The units themselves have been scrubbed out, the, the, like the cases. They're good and clean. They're ready to rock and roll. I took the connector off, the cart connector off. You have to desolder that. Uh, I, oh, I did this for the tw- the Cleco Vision too. You don't have to desolder it when you get the when you get it apart. You've got access to it. I, I scrubbed it out with alcohol and a toothbrush and cleaned it real well. Put a little bit more tension on the pins. Helped a ton. The twenty six hundred. It's got that cartridge guide on it. Like when you look in the in the face of the twenty six hundred where the cart goes, you can't pop that off. You've got to desolder the cartridge connector. So here's here's a pro tip for you. You got to desolder the cartridge connector. Pull the whole thing off the board. Then that black plastic cartridge guide that you see from the top of the unit, that there's two screws under that that you've got to unscrew, then you can take the actual cartridge connector out. So I pulled those out Cleaned them real good, got them ready to go, reassembled everything, tested everything. And uh, again, the one had a bad Tia, and I had that crushed Junior. I don't even know if I finish that story. I'm wandering all over. Don't have Whitney here to keep me straight. Keep me on the straight and narrow, keep me on the path. I, I had that damaged Junior that I'd already scavenged some parts off of. Well, it had a good Tia on it. That Junior lives on in this 20, one of these 2600s. And again, they're sitting here. As soon as I get these kits, I'm going to composite mod these suckers. So I'll have myself a good 2,600. Emma will have her 2,600. I have a huge selection of carts in my dupe pile. So she's going to get a bunch of games with it. I'm going to pick her out a couple good, my plan is a couple good standard Atari joysticks. And then I'm probably going to dip into my reserves of my third party aftermarket joysticks and get her a couple of those as well. And that's going to be a Christmas present for her. I'd say the composite mod is the way to go. Just get rid of the whole RF thing. And again, the Clico Vision, I'd probably composite Mod 1 if I was keeping it. Let's get down to the bread and butter here. That is my Commodore stuff. If you're doing Commodore, the big problem there is the power supplies. And this would be the power supply for like your VIC-20 and especially your bread bin style. Oh, no, I'm lying to you. It's the same basic power supply, just a different color. Even for those light kind of cream color 64Cs. The power supplies, I believe there's five volts... And then there's an AC, like nine volts AC that comes out of it. It's not something you can just kind of straightforward replace. There's a little bit that would go into it to reproduce that, that power supply. But the main problem with the power supply is Commodore potted the power supply. If you've ever picked up a Commodore power supply, it's heavy. That's because the electronics are in there. Then they filled the whole thing with potting resin and they're sealed in there. Now the problem with that is is that is bad for heat. When they fail, they fail and they're known to fail such that I think it's the uh, the regulator for the 5 volt will fail short and whatever's on the other side of the five volt regulator gets bridged through the output and right into the commodore and all the magic smoke comes out if you've got a commodore sitting on a shelf that you're going to pull back out hopefully i've inspired a few of you to do that it's not just commodore any of this stuff and if you've got atari home computer any of it pull it out and enjoy it you know bring it go go find that console enjoy it Commodore back to Commodore if you've got one on a shelf that that you're going to plug in or you you're using one today already or maybe you're about ready to buy one. Get rid of that factory supply. Don't even mess with it. I didn't even use my original supply or any of the other supplies that I've got. I already happen to have a third-party solution. There's a gentleman by the name of Kevin Autumn, O-T-T-U-M. And Kevin, Kevin has been awesome. Kevin and I have interacted quite a bit here recently. I got back with him on power supplies, actually. And then he and I have been trading some information on the monitors. I was working through that. And then he's actually helped me with a few other things, some other parts. But Kevin, he produces a replacement power supply. So he's done all the footwork to figure out what all the odd voltages are and how to reproduce them with modern pieces. And he used to do this thing called a new brick. And I'm so, so sorry, a rebrick. He would take your factory Commodore power supply. And I asked him if this was him, because I remember seeing this video back in the day. I, I had this power supply for several years and I'd never used it. And it was one of those things, Whitney and I talk about this all the time. If something's available and you have any thought that it might be something you're going to use, get it because it, it. who knows when it's not going to be available. And that's why I went and got this supply from Kevin. What Kevin used to do, he made a little frame out of like a two by four that was just the the inside of it was the same dimensions as the outside of a of a Commodore power supply and there was a little like shelf in it. Now I can't remember if he had like a little piece of trim board in there or he'd actually just like routed a lip out of the two by fours or whatever. But he, what he would do is he would split the case on the factory supply and you'd look in there and it was full of all that resin and it wouldn't fall out, but they would pot it in that plastic case. So it was in there. It wasn't like done separately then inserted into the case. So what he would do is he'd set the supply on top of this little frame in effect it had the hole in the middle and he just picked the thing up and he'd slam it on a table several times until finally the all that potting media broke loose and would drop down into that that hollow inside this two by four frame. I messaged him about. I was like, I remember seeing somebody that would do that. And he was like, yeah, that was me. <laughs> That's, so what he does now is he actually offers a thing called the new brick. It's the same. And I. I say this, I, he may have improved it. It gives you, it's the same benefit. I was going to say it's the same internals. I'm not sure if it's the same internals as the re-brick, but the new brick is the same, gives you the same benefit. It uses modern components, it's serviceable, and it gives you the these esoteric voltages that the 64 needs. The new brick, however, is done in a new case. He, uh, <laughs> he kind of mentioned that it was a, a huge pain, <laughs> clean out that potting resin because I'm I'm sure that at some point also some of it would shatter and he might not get all of it out of the case so then he had to try to chip it out to reuse the case. Anyway Kevin offers these new bricks. They work on the Commodore 64s both the the bread bins and the 64Cs and they work on the VIC-20s. If you're looking at getting into the 64, if you're looking at getting a VIC-20 reach out to Kevin. His email is Kevin at puppy breath p-u-p-p-y b-r-e-a-t-h puppy breath.org listen to the show know that whitney and i are are dog people and uh kevin's a dog person as well thus the puppy breath.org but kevin's kevin solid reach out to kevin at the time of this recording the new brick supplies are like 60 bucks again that's a new case they're done really nicely. They're totally serviceable. It's all modern parts, and you don't have to worry about the ticking time bomb that is that factory supply. Yeah, if you if you're in the market, definitely check it out. Kevin also hangs out. If you're going to do Commodore stuff, there's a Commodore sixty four slash one twenty eight group. I hang out there now. Kevin's there. There's a lot of there's a lot of cool information. It it hasn't devolved <laughs> into the bone that I pick with Facebook, which is just a post of some random thing in my such and such is doing this and it just says thoughts and a question mark. So I hope it never devolves to that. I, I know I pick on a lot of the arcade groups because they do that. It's definitely worth checking out. So the the other thing too, if you're a Commodore person is the storage solution and the 1541. There's a place in my heart for it. I like having the working fifteen forty one drives because I've still got my discs and there's something to be said for that physic the physicals. I'm if this is my disc, this is I got I remember getting this from my buddy such and such, or I made this and I had this when I was 12 and it still works. And I'm playing, you know, here's my save characters from Bard's Tale. There's a lot of SD card solutions out there and I'd look into them. I definitely, and actually for my birthday, my sister you know, what do you want? And I said, as silly as this sounds, I want something for my my Commodore. So my sister ordered me an SD to IEC solution. The IEC is the protocol, the port on the Commodore that's used to connect to its peripherals, like disk drives and printers. This is an SD drive and I'm making air quotes. So anyway, so she orders me this and there's several of these out there They're all over eBay. If memory serves, the root of this was it's like an open source type thing. And um, so there's a lot of versions and flavors of it out there. But the company that seems to really kind of really put the bow on it and done it well, and they're like the gold standard is it's a site called The Future Was 8-Bit. If you Google like Commodore SD2 IEC, and I'm going to have links for these in the show notes. If the future was 8-bit. It's one of the first ones to come up. And they make cool little cases that look like a mini 1541 drive. And they've got little buttons on the top. And the buttons are will let you do like a, a disc flip. So if you had a game that was a double disc game, you can push the button and it would, it would do the disc flip on you. And I'm really kind of learning this. I've got it in my hand. It came from the U.K., It came really fast, like a couple days. I was shocked, but I haven't actually gotten a chance to sit down and play with it. I think, like I said, I'm going to redo part of my shop. I'm going to move my Commodore in there, and that's I'm I'm not going to do it out here. Kind of, I've got a little space I'm using kind of as a test zone out here. I'm going to set it up right and make a dedicated space for it, and that's when I'm going to dive into it. But you can put disk images like on a Windows computer. You can download your disk images or their software to make a disk image like from your original disks. And you know, there's people in the community that have made disk images of their disks, and I'm sure they're traded around out there. You just throw them on there. You can throw this SD card into a Windows computer, load your disk images on it, take it over your 64 and have at it. They run like 42 pounds right now runs about 56 bucks. Again, there's cheaper solutions. There's cheaper flavors of this out there. To me, it seems like the, again, the gold standard is the future is 8-bit and their service has been great. I've actually had the product in my hand. It, it's made really nicely. I, I was, I'm really happy with how this physically, and I'm sure I'm going to be happy with it when, when I get it hooked up. And they've got a few other things out there for other consoles and the like. But yeah, check out the future was eight bit. Again, I'll have the link in in the show notes. Another thing to mention, if you're going to do the Commodore thing, if you've either got it or going to build into a like a physical disk drive. And this will actually help you a little bit too with these disk emulators. Is this concept in the Commodore world of a fast load? I know I'm being real Commodore heavy here, and and I'm almost done, everybody, and I'm going to run something else after this, and I'll mention that again here in a second. So uh, there's more to come. It's not just me on this show, but um, fast load was this thing in the Commodore world with to try to overcome the slowness of the disk drive. And I mentioned before that the disk drive was a standalone computer. And kind of the history there, the the lore there is, is that to get the drives out in time with uh, the VIC-20, they weren't able to optimize all the the command set that's in the ROM that's in the the disk drive. What ended up happening was, is when the 64 came out, then, then there was this reverse compatibility issue. We have drives out there now. They work with this machine what do we do? They kept it. They they didn't correct it. And it even carried forward through the line, even when they got into the 128. They were kind of hamstrung by a rush decision they made way back in the Vic 20 days. And it made these drives slow. Epix was one of the companies. Epics was made some pretty cool games back in the day, but Epics had a cartridge called Fast Load. And there was a few other equivalent type cartridges out there what these did was as you put them in the cartridge port booted the machine up and they wedged themselves in the kernel of the commodore and they intercepted the calls they basically rewrote these routines so that they were optimized for speed they better utilized the computer that was in the disk drive and they better implemented the serial protocol that was used to move the data back and forth it seems like a gimmick Like, oh, how's this going to make my disk drive faster, this cartridge? It really worked. I've actually got a fast load cartridge that was my fast load cartridge from back in the day. And I've looked at on eBay and they're kind of silly pricey. I I was kind of shocked at what they were kind of going for. Again, in the modern world, the future was 8-bit has a modern replacement. They call it Epic's fast load reloaded. It also actually has a software reset button on it. you know. So like Commodore, you get into games where you can't get out. You can't get back out to the OS. You got to power it off, power it on. And you get a push button, reset button with their fast load cartridge. And it runs like it's 15 pounds, which is 20 bucks at the time of this. And it does work. It does speed up. Because again, you're operating on, on rewriting routines for that serial protocol in the Commodore. It works and speeds up the SD card drive. As well. So, like when you go to the Future is 8 bit and you go to buy their SD card solution, right there it gives you an opportunity just to add a fast load card on it. So, yeah, I went ahead and added a fast load card. And I also bought a 1541 test cart from them, which is to test the 1541 drives. So, I, I didn't make a note on that. It just popped to mind. Yeah, the Future is 8 bit, I would definitely check them out. And again, I'm gonna put links in the show notes to To all the stuff that I'm talking about, let's hear from everybody else that's out there and what you're doing. Do you have console stuff in your collection? And do you have uh, old Commodore or old Atari stuff? Or do you are you a TRS-80 person? And you know, is it integrated into your game room? And you know, let us know. You know, reach out to us on Facebook or send send Whitney at Whitney at brokentoken.com or Brent at brokentoken.com or send us a tweet or something and just let us let us know. You know, is this something that you all out there, our listeners are also doing, and I'm really kind of, I'm rediscovering this world. And and again, the Commodore stuff really hit home. I'm just rediscovering this world. For the first time in a long time, I'm really, this sounds terrible. It's like, why do you have all this stuff if you're not excited about it? Why do you have these games down here? Why is it taking up all this space and all this time? And why do you talk about it incessantly? It's not that I'm not excited about the pinballs and the video games, but the Commodore stuff really... Man, that that hit home, and um, I'm just super, super excited about it, and I'm really excited to hear what everybody else is doing. I've rambled on for quite some time, so a couple more notes here. I know uh, on our last show, we set up a prize closet. And we started a, a, a little giveaway and we will return to that. I'm just, we're going to set that aside for now. When I get Whitney back, we'll unlock the prize closet. We'll give away that first round and then we'll reach back in and rummage around the, in the prize closet and we'll uh, uh, bring something back out for you, bring something else back out and we'll set up another giveaway. Also, right after this, we're going to run another segment from Port La- Portland. I've talked a long time, everybody. and Thank you. If you're still with me, I really appreciate it. So we're going to run another segment from Portland. Retro Gaming Expo 2019, PRGE 2019. And kind of keeping with this console theme here and this home computer theme, this is actually the title of this is Getting the Best Out of Your Classic Consoles at Any Price Point. And it's hosted by Rob Neal, the founder of Retro RGB. I haven't listened to this, but I'm going to bet just by the title, I haven't listened to it yet. I, I will listen to it. I bet by the title, they're going to talk about a lot of things that we've talked about here. I've talked a lot about digging around and sorting this out, and, but I've talked a little about what you can do with some of the things that I've got here. It's the Commodore stuff, the Atari stuff, of course, the Clico Vision. And, and I'm just limited to this because that's what I've got. And that's what I know now. I'm sure all, I know all this stuff exists in one form or fashion for the Atari 8-bits. And the radio shot computers, and I know it's out there, and I bet that's a lot of what we're going to get out of this uh, this discussion. So again, I'm going to run that right after uh, right after my segment here, and I'm going to close this out and just say, you know what? Uh, thank you for just listening. Thank you for for hanging with me. I think this is my first solo show. I, <laughs> I want to say I know I've set out to do it before, and it just didn't work out. I set my mind to it and said, we're just going to make it happen. We want to get something out for you all, and we're grateful for all of our listeners, and we we. Just just want to, we want to stay in touch with everybody and we didn't want to leave everybody hanging and wanted to, to just do what we could Whitney and I to continue to bring some content to your ears so to viol- to violate your ears with our incessant rambling or at least mine. All right so anyway, where can you find us? We're on iTunes. we're on Stitcher radio podcast. We're on the Google Play Store. And uh, to touch based on the iTunes there, please leave us a review. We talk about this, try to, on every show. We don't do this for the money. We don't do it for uh, anything else but the love of the hobby. If you could spend uh, a couple seconds and reach into iTunes and leave us a, a review, you know, five stars is the appropriate number of stars to leave in an iTunes review, and a little comment, that would be great. That helps to bubble us up in the search engine. And uh, hopefully, you know, anything that we're bringing to you, we can bring to more and more people. Bring them into the club. Bring them into the group, share some knowledge and lessons learned and and maybe bring some products to people's attention that that they didn't know was out there. So if you could leave us an iTunes review, uh, Whitney and I would greatly appreciate it. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Broken Token, Twitter at Broken Token, and of course, the website, www.brokentoken.com. Again, thank you for listening. And uh, sit back and enjoy Portland Retro Gaming Expo 2019's panel: Getting the best out of your classic consoles at any price point.
2: Hey, what's up, everybody? <laughs> I am. Uh, for those of you that don't know me, I am Bob, the founder of RetroRGB.com which is a website, a podcast, a YouTube channel, some behind-the-scenes research. And it started out as just a website to get the absolute best quality out of your classic consoles. And that lasted very shortly until I realized a much better goal is getting the best experience from your consoles. Because everybody has different needs. Everybody doesn't need a perfect setup. But there is a big difference between a good setup and a bad setup. And price has nothing to do with it. And that's kind of what this panel's about. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I've been talking all day, so I'm uh, going to have a few beer breaks in this. But... There we go. So this panel I've been doing for the better part of the year. And I usually carry CRTs with me. And people really get a good sense of the difference between things. Uh, but now this is going to eventually be a video, hopefully by the end of the year. So I switched it over to be slideshow based, and because I got to kind of practice for the video. But everybody's feedback at all of these panels has been absolutely amazing. <clears throat> and it's helped me really fine tune it. So I'm doing a Q&A after, so any feedback on this is always much appreciated. Uh, but to start out, the, the comparison I always like to make between classic consoles is classic cars. Because you don't need to know anything about cars or even like them in order to get some of the main differences. <clears throat> First is that when a console or a car is new, it's shiny and, and people want to use it, and you know, it's, it's new and flashy. But then after a while, it just kind of becomes junk that gets sold off at bargain prices. But then some of them, some consoles and some cars, are realized as classic and the things that people want to restore and to really appreciate. But a much better comparison between the two is nobody would buy a classic car just because they need to get to the store. You buy a classic car because that's the experience you want to have while you're driving. And that's exactly what people who use original consoles want. <clears throat> and it's the experience of what that's like. Now, um, in order to explain what that experience is, I have to get a little bit nerdy, um, but don't worry, I'm not gonna get too in-depth. Oops, sorry. (laughs) Uh, So if any of my super nerd friends are here, I'm gonna gloss over some basic details. Please try not to get triggered and get mad at me. I just wanna make it more general for everybody. Um, but this is what you would see as a typical classic gaming experience. This is an old console with composite video output going to a CRT. (laughs) And how this works is like any other computer program, in that it starts out as a bunch of digital ones and zeros, and then at some point in most consoles, and I'll be using Super Nintendo as an example in this one, uh, in most consoles, as soon as it turns analog for the first time, is in a video chip. And then in this video chip, the first thing that it's exited as is three main signals, red, green, and blue, and each of those signals containing their brightness and color information. Then there's a fourth signal called sync that carries all the information on where things go on screen. And I've already found the first problem with this presentation, because I forgot to put sync on this. (laughs) But Imagine another fourth line right next to it. This is generally just called RGB even though technically it's RGBS and when this signal finally leaves this console and goes to a main amp chip where all those little color wires go to and that does a few things. The first thing it does is prepare the RGB signal out for whatever devices can accept it and up until recently the only way you can get RGB from these consoles is by getting a SCART cable. There's other options now but SCART was predominantly used in Japan and Europe, um, and you could technically get the best signal from your consoles. Now, I am assuming that this little picture of Link isn't scaling very well, so hopefully you could use your imaginations in this one. But after uh, after RGB, it is then processed, those three colors are combined into Chroma, and then the brightness and sync information is combined into Luma, and that makes S-Video. And, generally speaking, S-Video is a small step down from RGB, but still considered a very high-quality signal. Then, those two lines are combined into a cable we probably are all used to seeing, composite video. And the jump from S-Video to uh, composite is pretty large, because you're getting a lot of interference from the color information that goes through there as well. Then finally is kind of an interesting signal called RF. Uh, I'll give a quick rundown because I could probably talk a lot about this, but it was a fairly ingenious idea of combining all of the video and audio signals into a broadcast signal that you're essentially broadcasting to the antenna input of your TV. you can get much a very wide variety of performance from RF because if you live where I live in Manhattan and there's a million wireless signals around, it's going to look terrible. But in every one of the presentations I did in a room like this, most people could not tell the difference between RF and composite. So still a perfectly good way to play in the right scenario. Um, now, <clears throat> In the context of what we're talking about here, I do want to mention component video, and it's the same quality as RGB, but not compatible in the context of retro gaming. So uh, if you wanted to use RGB, you would either have to use something like an HD retrovision cable that goes to component, or a transcoder that does the thing for you. You plug SCART in and get component out. But regardless of what those signals, or which of those signals you use, every single one of those signals takes exactly zero milliseconds to get to the top left of a CRT, less than one millisecond to exit the console and start being drawn. It takes about eight milliseconds to get to the middle, and then 16.9 milliseconds to complete the entire frame and then go back to the beginning. And that's exactly how a CRT works. It's a beam of light, that's drawing a line, one line at a time, from left to right. And your persistence of vision is what allows that to look like one full frame of data. And it's, a, it's part of the original look and feel of these games, because this is how the developers designed the games to be played. <clears throat> so, that overall is how these consoles work, how a CRT works very quickly. And, um, and what the uh, classic experience is from a technical point of view. And that's kind of the whole thing that I'm aiming for, is that the classic gaming experience takes zero lag from the time the signal exits the console to get to your CRT, and it's an image drawn by a beam of light shooting over the back of a piece of glass. Any CRT is a great way to experience the classic consoles. And that 's the first point I want to make is in most places you can still find CRTs for free so if you 're on a budget and you want to start gaming, if you already have your own old console, grab any CRT whatsoever now you're lucky enough to fi- if you're lucky enough to find CRTs with other inputs that's great s video is an awesome way to go or you could even mod certain CRTs but i 'll get back to that a little bit later so basically um, oh sorry so The next step that you might want to go into, if you wanted a better quality image on your CRT, is things that are nicknamed RGB monitors. Now, there's two main difference between consumer-grade TVs that you would just find anywhere and RGB monitors. And the first is the amount of lines that are drawn. So, that consumer-grade TV I just showed had about 250 lines to it and your average RGB monitor can go from 600 to thousand lines and that's a pretty noticeable difference so that's the same 16.5 milliseconds as well so if you imagine how many more lines can be drawn in you know 250, 600, 1000 in that same period of time that's how you end up with more detail Now, there's two types of RGB, oh, sorry. The second point I wanted to make is that, generally speaking, RGB monitors have RGB inputs as well as S-Video and composite. Some have mixed, some you need expansion cards for, but in general, you can pick one of these up and just start using your consoles with whatever cables you still own and eventually upgrade to RGB once the budget allows. So now there's two types of RGB monitors you generally find. The first is PVMs, or Professional Video Monitors. And these were used um, for things like medical imaging, security cameras, and basically places where you needed more detail on the screen. They range from $1,000 to $5,000. And today, while they're still skyrocketing in price, you could still find them for a few hundred dollars, or much more if they've already been restored, but I'll touch upon that in a bit. The second type of RGB monitor you might see is BVMs. Or broadcast video monitors. Now these were precision instruments that were designed for, for TV studios to calibrate movies and even for local TV networks to make sure that the signal you get at your house is as perfect as it can, as it can be. So it had to show as much detail as possible, as accurately as possible. And a picture I always like to show is George Lucas calibrating some very silly CGI scene on a BVM monitor because that's the quality that he needed in order to pull that off. Now, these things, when they were new, ranged from five to $60,000. And nowadays, they're really ranging between 500 and uh, more than I paid for my last car. (laughs) But it's, unfortunately too, because they're so rare, even even compared to PVMs, the prices are going through the roof even for not the greatest ones. But in all honesty, any CRT is a great way to experience it. And the better inputs or the better tube that you use inside is really just going to add sharpness. In my opinion, it doesn't add anything to the experience unless that really matters to you. So that's something that I heard a lot, is that people assume that you need an RGB monitor and a lot of expensive equipment to get the best experience. Then best, once again, it's just relative. So any CRT you could find is great, but I completely understand people in scenarios which they don't have the room for a CRT, they're too heavy, or they frankly just don't wanna use a piece of equipment that's aging and gonna need restoration soon anyway. So that brings me to flat screen monitors. And flat screens introduce a few major problems that will never be able to be solved easily. At least, probably not from the manufacturers. And the first is resolution. So, your average classic game console is about 240 pixels tall. And you need to stretch that to whatever resolution it is that your TV is. And how you stretch it and and how the signal is treated makes all the difference. So, this is an example of what typically happens when you plug your console with anything from composite video to some other scalers, which I'll get to in a minute, into a TV, and it immediately processes the image wrong. It thinks that the 240 progressive signal that the game console is outputting is a 480 interlaced TV signal. And a few things happen. The first and most obvious is the aspect ratio, and on most TVs you could just press a button to get in 4x3 mode, but it still introduces the problem that CRTs didn't have pixels. So some classic games are 320 pixels wide, others are 256, but they were always the same exact width on a CRT. So even if you put it in 4x3 mode, unless you use the correct processors, it's either going to be too narrow or too wide, depending. That's just the smallest gripe and the easiest to point out because of the picture, but the much more important thing to note is that when these progressive signals are processed as interlaced, a few things happen that, in my opinion, really ruin the experience. And the first is a flicker that I'm not going to be able to show with a still slide, and it's best probably shown with a slow motion camera, but it's one of those things that if you just take a glance at it, you wouldn't notice, but after an hour of playing, you're definitely going to have a headache. The other thing about processing progressive wrong is you get a weird blurring effect that happens whenever motion happens. So you can see the trees down below and even Mario himself and even the turtle shell, things that were moving when I snapped the screenshot are all blurred in a weird way. And if you see this in motion, it's not just blurry, it just changes the look of the game. So uh, the other problem is that many people, especially when there was no other options out there, used scalers that were designed for TV signals, and it did the same thing that the TVs themselves did. This scaler was designed for DVD players and stuff, and it does a very good job for that, but if you plug in your game console, it has all the same problems I just showed. <laughs> now, to make matters worse, there are some companies out there that are selling snake oil solutions that use those same exact chips that were designed for TV signals and marketing them for game consoles. And it stinks, every industry always has their their people trying to swoop in and take money from people, but it's just something you have to deal with, which stinks. Because if you didn't know anything about this and you saw these cables, it makes perfect sense that it would be the right thing to buy. So generally if you're looking to pick up one of these things, anything that looks like this with those vent holes and then the four screw holes, some of them have the HDMI cable built in, some don't. Stay away from all of these. They will absolutely ruin the experience. And the other problem that a lot of these introduce is the way they scale the image, which is less of an issue but still worth talking about. So I don't know if you could quite see that. Let me zoom in for a minute. So this is My silly face scaled the wrong way. So you can see how there's jagged edges on the side. This is how a video game should be scaled. So if you take a video game and scale it the way the other ones did, the way I should be scaled in this picture, it smooths the image out and changes the look. Not as big a deal, but something that's definitely worth mentioning. And the last thing is the blur about that. So this is kind of a better example of how it would get blurry in this scenario. And to be honest, if the other problems didn't exist, I would have never even mentioned this, maybe even just as an aside, because just a bit of blurring isn't experience ruining. But when you add it to all those other things, that's when it really starts to pile up. Now, the, the other thing that's not as much of an issue anymore, but still something you need to pay attention to is lag. So, all CRTs start out by adding almost no input latency. But your average flat screen has about two and a half frames, 44 milliseconds of lag. Um, You could get very good TVs with low lag. Um, This is just a very cheap LG TV. You don't have to spend a lot of money at all on that. Uh, And this is five milliseconds, way less than a frame. Perfectly good for retro gaming. But the thing to, to note is that your average modern TV um, not so much the early flat screens, but your average modern one is very consistent at their latency. So even the slide before, you know, it's my OLED TV at 44 milliseconds. I don't usually have a problem gaming on it because it's always 44 milliseconds. So you could kind of, even if you don't know it, you could subconsciously time your jumps and time your moves around that. Um, and, of course, the lower the latency, the better. But Uh, As long as you put your TV in game mode on a modern TV, you should be cool. But the scalar lag is the much bigger problem. So this is that same scalar that was designed for TV images, showing about four and a half, pushing five frames of lag. So if anybody doesn't know what you're looking at, um, on the left is just a direct signal from the Super Nintendo, and on the right is that signal split running through that scalar into an HD CRT. So you'll see that the one on the right is behind. So that's how, uh, kind of an easier way to measure lag. And not only is this a lot of lag to deal with, but it varies. So this is that same scaler just a few seconds later showing three and a half frames of lag. So that means it's impossible to time your jumps and to adjust to it because it's always changing. And to put this into perspective, you take your average TV with one of these scalers that's not designed for video games and you're looking at seven frames of variable lag. So unless you're playing like a turn-by-turn RPG, you can't ever adjust to that. And even if people don't realize that they're experiencing lag, which is actually very common, they just know at the end of the day they don't enjoy the game like they used to. Or if they're a newcomer, the game plays different than it should, and they usually don't like it as much. One comparison that I like to make, that's a CRT on the left using RF as its input. And on the right is that scaler that's not designed for video games on a decent TV. I would, any day of the week, rather use RF, even if it was blurry and had some interference, on a CRT than RGB on a flat screen in a bad scaler. But there's some excellent choices out there, and there's only a few which makes this very easy to remember afterwards. The screenshot on the left is showing the best scaler you can get today and probably for the foreseeable future, at least six months to a year or so, as far as I know. And uh, the one on the right is the same picture. And You can immediately tell all of the differences, even though it's not even in motion. And that scaler is called the Open Source Scan Converter, the OSSC. Uh, This is the higher end option, and it's about $150, maybe a little more after shipping. And this takes all of the best signals from your classic consoles and scales them up to 1080p and does everything perfect. Scales progressive as progressive. You dial in the perfect aspect ratio and it it really is a great device to use. If you just plug in your consoles and use it, it'll work fine. Uh, There are... uh, special patches you can download. A member of the retro gaming community named Firebrand X has been nice enough to do all the research and make it very easy to just put an SD card in and you could get even better processing out of it by just using these pre-made profiles. Um, The only thing to note is all modes aren't compatible with all TVs. So you should be fine if you buy one of these, but maybe like your Genesis would work in all modes, but your Super Nintendo might not work in 1080p. You might have to only use 720p. So still pretty great for experts. Um, But the next option, the entry level option, is something called the RAD2X, which has just been released. You can pre-order them now. They're $50, and they plug into your console, they take the RGB output of it, the best quality you could get, and double that to 480p. Now, it's not the sharpest option, but everything else is there. Zero lag, just like the OSSC. Scaling is absolutely perfect. And it's really designed for people who want to just start playing their games and not worry about anything else. And the same person that designed that uh, the processing board, Vike Chi, also designed the RetroTank 2X, which is essentially the same exact thing as the RAD 2X, but it takes um, composite, S-video, and component video inputs. This is about $100, and uh, it's a really great way to get started because you could just use whatever inputs or whatever cables that your console had with it. The one other thing I want to mention is the Framemeister, because that's something some of you might even have, and you've probably heard of, um, and if you own one, know that it's a great piece of equipment, and I, I still like it, but it was great for its time, and it it's kind of been pushed aside by the other solutions. I just wanted to mention it because it's so often talked about. It's a, compatible with every single TV, it has every input you could imagine, but it's Uh, even though it's discontinued, you still get them for around $400. It adds about a frame and a half of lag, and the colors aren't processed as good as the OSSC. So if you already own one, it's a great solution, but I wouldn't suggest going out and buying one just because of all those things. Um, If you're a streamer, though, this might be a good option. So if there's any streamers in here, you could ask the questions after, and I'll kind of go into it. So the only last thing about playing on flat screens is that every signal that you send a TV or any digital solution, including a capture card, everything gets scaled. And that means that the interference as well as the game data will get scaled with it. So that's uh, that's kind of why I said before about how the different signals you use on a CRT don't really matter for the experience, but composite video scaled up to 4K might kind of be distracting. And that brings us to one of the last things I want to talk about is restoration. And some things you might have heard, terms like RGB mods, RGB bypassing and all that stuff, involve people wanting to get the best signals from their consoles so that when they scale them, they'll be able to see the clearest picture without any interference. And while I could talk about restoration for an entire two panels in itself, I'm just going to very quickly skim through so people get an idea of what I'm talking about. The first type of uh, of maintenance or restoration you might want to do is consoles like the SNES Mini or the earlier revisions of the Nintendo 64 that don't output RGB by themselves. These require a very simple chip like the one I'm showing here, that you just solder a few wires, drop it on top of the pins, and poof, you get RGB. Now, there's some consoles like later revisions of the N64, the Nintendo, the original NES, and the uh, Atari 2600, as well as a few others that require much more complicated mods. So it's something to think about if maybe using a retro tank is more than enough for you, or maybe not. Something you might want to look into. But then there's other mods for crazy people like me that are RGB bypassing. And this is something where you take the output of like a one chip Super Nintendo, the later models that are very good quality. If you put that through an OSSC on a 4K TV, it's going to look great. But you might still notice a little bit of imperfections, and if that bothers you, you could remove the pins right where those RGBs signals first leave the chip, right where I talked about before. Um, You could lift those pins up and get the direct signal right from that. And that way you could put it through this amplifier here and many others like it that use audio file and video file grade stuff on it to process the image as best as possible. Now, it would have been silly for Nintendo to include this, because in the 90s, there's no way you could have seen this data. But when you're stretching that tiny little image to 4K, you might notice a difference. Now, bypassing a Super Nintendo is by no means mandatory, it's really just for the crazies like me. However, consoles like the Sega Genesis have a lot of interference. And uh, it's something that, once again, won't ruin the experience, but might be distracting. So, one of my favorite mods to do is called the Triple Bypass, where you bypass the video, audio, and even the output DIN connector of a Genesis 1, and install this board. And you get pretty much as perfect of an output as you could expect from a classic console. And while I wouldn't call that mandatory, if the Genesis is your favorite console and you're gaming on a digital solution, it's something you might want to look into. But there are mandatory mods out there. And the number one that I would say is whenever you have bad capacitors, you need to address that right away. Uh, Capacitors are components with fluid inside that when they get old, sometimes they dry out and other times they leak. And when they leak, it has a fluid on it that if left untouched will eat through the motherboard to the point where it is unfixable. So consoles like the original Game Gear, uh, Turbo Express, Turbo Duo, um, original Xbox, and there's a long list of others that I'll hopefully have up on the website soon. If you own one of these, you need to open it up and check it out. Now, if you're not a botter, that's fine. You could just unbolt it, carefully take it apart and snap some pictures. And if yours looks like this with some leaky gunk all over it, you really absolutely have to replace those right away. Otherwise, your console will just get ruined. Now, TVs also have capacitors in them that start to die. That's my friend Jose who I constantly bother to help me do this stuff with. And luckily most TVs and RGB monitors I've seen, when the capacitors die, they just dry out. They don't leak out. Uh, but if you want to get the best image out of it, or if you do find them leaking, you'll have to replace those as well. And I do also want to tell everybody, I always say this, if you're going to work on TVs, be very, very careful. Um, it, you There's zero chance of injury when you mod a Super Nintendo, unless you do something very silly like mod it in the bathtub with it plugged in. <laughs> but On TVs, if you don't discharge them properly, you have a very good chance of getting electrocuted, and if you have heart problems, you could get zapped, and that's terrible. So please don't get injured. Uh, But if you do want to restore those, you could replace the capacitors and get a much better image out of it. Uh, And you could even do things like add RGB inputs. So you get the best signal from the console going directly into the tube, and to be honest, I've seen a lot of CRTs with these mods, and I'm always blown away at how good they look. So it's kind of neat to do, uh, and you would end up with something like that. So one of the things that I always like to bring up when I tell these is, if you like working on stuff, this could be a fun thing. You know, you could make this a uh, a family or friend project where you restore your TV, you add an RGB mod, you mod all your consoles, and. You know, that's totally cool if that's what you'd like to do. But I completely understand if anybody here is listening to this going, I don't want to deal with all that. I just want to play some games. So if that's the case, just make good choices. Exactly like which cables to use on a flat screen, which clone consoles or other solutions to use on a CRT or a flat screen matters the most. So those, um, I hate to always pick on them, but those HDMI retron consoles will get you a bad experience for all the exact reasons I just explained. Lag, processed image wrong, and all that stuff. But um, you can get good software emulation for free if you want to just download and deal with some emulators. My favorite for the classics are FPGA solutions. So this is a picture of the DE10 nano which is used in the Mr. If you like do-it-yourself projects, if you just want to buy something, plug it into your flat screen and go the company Analog makes some really great stuff that's designed by KevTris who's a friend of mine and a really great engineer that reverse engineers these consoles to be pretty close to flawless. So definitely wanted to just add that at the end in case this is getting a little crazy. So the very last point I want to make is the fact that you're here at all is really awesome because you're learning about this stuff and you can decide if it's for you or not. Maybe you'd find even a better way to explain this to your friends. But it is a bit annoying to me that you have to know this at all. TV manufacturers should have thought of gamers right when they started making flat screens. Companies shouldn't exist to try to take advantage of us by selling us TV chips and gaming cables, but it is what it is, and we gotta kind of just deal with it. So um, I'll get ready to take uh, questions in a minute. I just uh, wanted to first, before I forget, like I sometimes do, thank you everybody once again for coming and just remind everybody that if you like hearing about this stuff and you want more behind the scenes research and stuff done, please consider supporting through any of the services like Patreon or Subscribestar because uh, we have an amazing team working for RetroRGB and I'd like to keep this going as long as possible. So uh, uh, I have time for a bunch of questions if anybody is interested. Yeah. Um, Mm How do you decide
1: what consoles to put
2: on what displays? Great question. So, for people that have multiple displays, how do you decide what consoles to use on what displays? Um, The oddest answer is whatever your eyes prefer. So, a silly example is I grew up playing Neo Geo in the arcades, never at home. We had, I think, a Sony TV at home, which is the Arperture Grill, and most arcade monitors used shadow mask, so every time I see I want to play Neo Geo, I make sure to grab my CRT that has that type of tube in it because that's what my eyes want to see. There's no wrong answer to that; it's really just what you prefer. Yep. Um, you been talking about the uh, Frame Meister versus the OSSC for streaming. You want to get a little bit more into that? I stream retro gaming. Sure. So the Framemeister is compatible with every single capture card out there. And if it isn't, if it's not compatible with one, I've certainly never heard about it. Uh, Also, the same person, Firebrand X, has made some incredible profiles for that as well. So as a streamer, you might use something like the GSCART switch that has dual outputs, or there's other ways to split your output, but it's very common for streamers to game on a CRT. Excuse me, and then stream through HDMI. So if that's the case, your colors are going to get compressed on the internet anyway. The 1.5 frames of lag doesn't matter because you're streaming. So that is just the easiest way to get every single input out to your capture card. Now it's expensive, but, and there's other ways to do it that are way more complicated. So if you don't mind spending the money, it's a plug and play solution. Um, if you if you really want to dig into getting crazy streaming perfect signals, you can do direct RGB inputs and do some of the stuff I do, but it's really just how much time you want to spend versus how much money you want to spend. But yeah, if you're, it, it, that is a perfect solution for many streamers still. Yep. Yeah, just, um, <laughs> okay. Oh, sorry. No, go no for it.
1: Okay. Uh, an Amiga 500. Okay. Uh, but it's a PAL version from Britain. Um, I've got it working now. Uh, and I have an NTSC Commodore 1080 monitor. I saw a bunch of them down on the floor. And somebody said, hey, you should talk to Bob because that one will auto-switch from the PAL uh, signal to the NTSC on its own. I don't know if that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't see a switch on the back of it, they said it will auto-switch. And he <coughs> would know how to get the cable from that interesting new connector at the back
2: of the monitor into that Amiga. Okay, so um, there's two answers to that. Uh, go ahead and try PAL or NTSC on it. Um, like the best example is a PVM. If you put a PAL signal in it, it just works perfect. Uh, if it doesn't work, it won't hurt it to try. I wouldn't leave it running, but it's not going to kill it if you just try to give it the signal. So just go right ahead and see. And as far as the cable, I'm not familiar with that exact model. Check retrogamingcables.uk or something like. That. Just Google it; it'll be the first one that comes up. Uh, and if they don't have a cable, um, you could try to research the output of the DIN and have another company called Retro Access out of the US uh, try to make a custom cable for you. Uh, but that's pretty much, you just have to do a little bit of research on that or just talk to me after and maybe I could take a look at it for you. Okay. No problem. Yeah, the question I missed before. Sorry. Uh, Do you think we're going to see direct HDMI mod solutions for Super Nintendo and Genesis, like we see with the Dreamcast and the NES? So the question is, can you get a direct HDMI output from Genesis and Super Nintendo, like you would Dreamcast and the NES? And the answer is no, because of the way the data is processed. Um, The other consoles that have those are able to tap into the digital signals while they're still ones and zeros like I showed the matrix picture before. And that's how you're able to get an HDMI mod that's perfect like that. What you would have to do for Super Nintendo or Genesis is essentially build in an OSSC, which seems like a lot of work when you could just buy an OSSC, so great question, but no. (coughs) Uh, People are trying to use a
1: computer monitor. Is a monitor?
2: Yes, so can you use a computer monitor with retro consoles? So, this is all the frequency. So, before I said CRTs don't have pixels, but they do have frequency response. So, RGB monitors are 15 kilohertz, VGA are 31 and above. So, you would have to have a converter to convert the signal. And the best one is actually OSSC. You just take the HDMI out and put it through a VGA. Yeah. Dongle. A lot of those have well over yeah, they're, they're really great solutions too, so um, it, that's, that's definitely something you could do, but um, you know, you won't be able to use light guns, you probably won't be able to use the Sega 3D glasses, so if that doesn't matter to you, it's totally cool, but yeah, it's a good solution. Yeah. Can, can that solution really be as fast as a line doubler, and are there any line doublers
1: that you know of for VGA that you like?
2: The OSSC, yeah. That's zero lag and goes from old to new. Did I did I hear your question right? I'm sorry.
1: Uh, yeah, the OSSE output does it
2: output VGA? No, HDMI, but Anytime you have direct signal conversion from digital to analog or analog to digital with no other processing, generally speaking, it's zero lag. So that lag test picture, the first ones I showed with uh, the little monitor in the time sleuth, that's actually running through an HDMI to component converter and obviously showing zero lag still. So you can get, I think a 10DAC is the brand that I've been using for, I think it's $15 or something. So it's uh, just HDMI to VGA and that's the exact way you would do it. And it, it looks really good too. Um, the one video I'm going to do soon is if you add scan lines a certain way you could even make the VGA monitor look like an RGB monitor um, and it's absolutely a worthy solution that looks awesome. Yeah, if you're a computer, you can output 240p at 20 hz and you still get 240p scan lines. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, um, My current main retro console is a uh, PS2
1: and I also play PS1 games on it. And I'm currently running that through a Sony Trinitron uh, CRT TV, mm-hmm. and I'm getting a really good image out of it. Um, given what you said during the panel, what would you recommend
2: would be like the next step to like take you know to get an even better image out of it? So it's a PS2 that you're running PS1 and two games directly via component into your flat screen? Uh, no, and say a yeah, CRT TV into your CRT. Um, I mean that's that's awesome. How did, uh, w- uh, what what was the next step you were looking to go to? Flat screens or different monitors or possibly getting a better getting a bigger the CRT TV or just going yeah. to flat screen. So you could look into RGB monitors that also accept 480p. Those are generally really expensive. So if you have the space, I would just go get a BGA monitor and whenever your PS2 goes into 480p mode, use a converter, just same type of zero lag signal converter. And then you'd have to change the wires when you play, but once the game is loaded, it stays in 480p. And that's a pretty cheap and easy way to get a better picture for all the PS2 480p games that uh, support it. But just a quick note that most of the PS2 libraries 480i which is fine on a CRT, but if you use it on a flat screen, you start to get that interlaced jitter. That's and... the thing I'm worried about. Yeah, so stick with the CRT, definitely. Opp- to, to go the opposite, though, you could boot your game and um, you could just get a component video cable and only use your flat screen when you're playing 480p games. That, that certainly would be a good one and uh, on Amazon the HD retrovision cable. It's a uh, it's the best one out there it's, it's rated up to 1080p with screenshots and scope captures to prove that it actually does what they say it is So cool was, um, okay. I
1: was wondering um, What devices would be a good option for like 480p uh, Maybe like a Nintendo Wii or maybe an Xbox 2 onto like an HDMI only 4K flat panel, <laughs> and uh, and what's a good option for like console like that have VGA to like dreamcast to HDMI.
2: So, um, same thing as before. Anytime you're just going from analog to digital. You can just get cheap converters on Amazon for 20 bucks that just change it from analog to digital. You get zero lag added. Some of them are okay. They're, you know, you might notice a little thing with the colors, but it's by no means experience ruining. no lag, it doesn't mess anything up. So those are the best. And uh, same thing with the Dreamcast. You can get the plug and play solutions. Um, HD Retrovision's coming out with their cable. Two years ago, <laughs> it'll, it'll be out soon enough. But um, the DC HDMI, the internal HDMI mods pretty spectacular. If you, uh, if Dreamcast is your favorite console, that's definitely the one to go to. Yeah. Yep. Is there like a
1: specialty CRT industry
2: right now? Is there no one producing CRTs anymore? No, no one's producing new CRTs because they're uh, they're really hard to make. So it's unfortunately just. Uh, you could restore ones that are already there, but rewinding and setting a yoke, I mean, we're, you're talking about a long-term project, so. I think I have time for one more question, so, uh, the, uh, with the hat. sorry. Yeah, I was looking I was interested in, in modding, kind of something, so I'm asking uh, if you might have a suggestion for a project that is easy, uh, maybe an something that you can see the results from, maybe you'll listen. Yeah, great question to end on. If you want to get into modding, um, the easiest one that I know of is the uh, Super Nintendo RGB mod or the N64 one. The Super Nintendo Mini one is easier because when you put the wires through the holes, it's nothing on the other side, so if it goes too far, you just turn the board over and snip them. With the N64, if it goes too far, you could short out the chip on the other side. But in most cases, you just pull the wire back out and it's fine. So The SNES Mini, if you want to get started, and if you have any dead electronics around your house, open them up and see if the, uh, they call them VIAs, the little holes, See if they have ones that look the same and just practice on some dead electronics. So, okay, doors are open. I guess we're out of time. So, thank you all so much for coming. I really appreciate it.
0: Congratulations. You made it to the end of another episode of the Broken Token Podcast. I promise they'll do better next time. Maybe next episode, they'll actually listen to me for a change. Just go easy on the guys. They don't have a lot to work with. But I know their moms would be so proud. We want to hear your feedback, comments, rants, raves, and otherwise, both good and bad. Drop us a line via email at podcast at com. You can also call us at 470-2-CALL-BT. That's 470-222-5528. And leave us a voicemail. We'd love to hear from you and we might play your message on air in the next episode. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Broken Token and like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash Broken Token. Brittany and Whitney are always posting content between the official episodes and it's a great way to stay involved with the show between the shows. You can find our podcast on the iTunes store and on Stitcher Radio. Just search for Broken Token and subscribe to the show. Like what you hear? Please consider leaving us a review on the iTunes store and on our Stitcher Radio page as the reviews help out the show. Please visit our website at brokentoken.com for articles, reviews, restoration logs, direct show downloads, and expanded show notes for this and every episode. Once again, thanks for listening.
1: The Broken Token podcast would like to thank the only person on staff who has actual vocal talent, Miss Christy Letzy.
0: And that's me. <laughs>
1: Music for the Broken Token Podcast is graciously provided by Mr. Scott Denisi. For more information about his music and the projects that he works on, visit his website at www.scottdenisi.com. Go Team Fiero. Thank you for hanging with us. We love you all dearly. Until next time, keep your quarters clean and game on.